0: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and Ar
1: Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is Ar Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A L Levy URM Audio, and that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Our guest today is Bill Hudson, who is a U.S.-based hard rock and metal guitarist, who's currently the lead guitarist, songwriter, and founder of Nuclear Blast's North Tale. Throughout this dude's highly decorated career, Bill's worked with artists such as Sabotage, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, UDO, Circle to Circle, I Am Morbid, John Oliva, Doro Pesh, and many, many more. The guy is prolific, and not only has he played with everybody, he's also an incredible guitar player. So for those of you who are interested in a career as being a sideman or a professional guitar player who gets gigs, touring gigs, playing for other people or sessions, this is the episode for you to listen to. I will shut up. I introduce you, Bill Hudson. Well, Bill Hudson, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast.
2: Thank you guys for having me, man. Awesome to be back. Well, back. (laughs) (laughs)
0: back ish ish hey bill hey for people uh wondering what he means by back uh bill's done two urm podcast episodes
2: yeah it feels like coming back but i guess it's the new for riff hard nice to meet you john by the way you're you're an amazing guitarist man oh thank you bill you
1: are amazing too i'm looking very much to talking to you and meeting you for the first time
0: likewise my friend (laughs) so that said uh how's your guitar playing doing and uh lockdown?
2: I have to say it's better than it's ever been. I've developed a couple of things. You know, I'm great at developing things, but I'm I'm terrible at marketing them. So <laughs> I've, I've been trying to come up with a guitar course of some sort, but everybody's doing it. You know, I've been doing some things to my own playing that are improving it greatly. And I'm thinking about a way to package that as a guitar course. And, uh, the results I'm seeing on my own playing are kind of It's kind of pissing me off that I wasn't doing this before What is it? Ba- it's no secret that that like interval training works for everything, be it for working out or for instruments. You know, it's based on the interval training. But but the thing is, you gotta focus on one thing, just one thing. You know, like if it's um say changing from one string to another, then you focus on that. You take a lick and you focus on that for you don't know thirty minutes. Then you take a break, and, and that that's the uh, I'm trying to find the sweet spot because I'm trying to stop when you're at your max because. Because at one point you start getting tired, and then you start getting frustrated. So I'm trying to figure out what the at optimum time that you should sit and do it, uh, do whatever exercise it is. Is but the point is, I improved my, especially specifically like my alternate picking and my legatos too. Like I'm playing things that I wrote when I was younger that I thought I played well, and now I'm performing them, and I'm like, oh, that that's how it's supposed to sound, you know? And it, it's. It's to a point where I'm watching older videos of me playing and being and being very frustrated. It's like I just broke a 15-year plateau in my playing because of quarantine because I had nothing but time to work on certain things, you know.
0: <laughs> it's it's kind of like being a teenager again and having all that time. Exactly. That is exactly
2: what it feels like. Because when I was a teenager, I would sit and, you know, and and be like, okay, well, this phrase, how do I do that? What's the better way to pick that? I haven't done that in years. But I, I feel like I kind of created a, a system like it works. It works for rhythm or for lead guitar or for chords or for whatever it is. You know, it's it's all, you know, I haven't done it in fucking 15 years, you
0: know. When you talk about focusing on one thing, can you clarify how that's different than like, Maybe how you would have gone about it in the past? Yes. Like, say you're taking like a phrase or something.
2: Absolutely. In the past, I would take, first of all, um, when you practice guitar, uh, you need to put the ego completely aside. You know, it needs, you need to think that you suck because the second that you think that you're doing well, that's when you stop focusing on that. You're like, oh, I'm doing that well enough. You know, um, a lot of people say, "Oh, don't, don't, you know, up your metronome until you master that speed." But that's a lot easier said than done. I think it's more like this: you take a phrase, you take, I don't know, a 16 note phrase, you know, and it's like a bar, it's a full bar. You have to work on all these things. You have to do all these things. Say it's I uh, I don't know, let's take a uh, some alternate picking phrase and you're playing 16 different notes and you have a hard time, say going from the D string to the G string, you know, like with the upstroke. I don't know, I'm coming up with that right now. You know, downstroke on the D and upstroke on the G. That's what you're struggling with right now. So you practice this entire phrase over and over again. There's only a little bit of that that you're gonna do. So I would isolate that one tempo where that happens and play that over and over again, make a 16 bars of that. Does that make sense?
0: It makes complete sense. Yes. Yeah. So finding the weak link and drilling the weak link.
2: That alone, you know, that alone. And even like finding out, you know, the two notes that you play before and the two notes that you play after that you're already good at and make that be the the phrase, you know. It's just extremely nerdy stuff that I, I didn't think until recently. And, and, and it kind of applies. It, it's very much the physical part of playing. It's not very much about musicality. It's more about literally fixing physical things that you struggle with, that I've struggled with for years and that I didn't know I did until recently, you know, until I became better. It
1: might have also been just bad habits that you picked up over time. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's a big one um, because I think that everyone eventually picks up bad habits.
2: Yeah, and the thing about bad habits is you learn to deal with them you know, it's like, oh man, every time I have to skip this string, I, I, do, I do that. You always think about it every time it happens, you know. Yeah. It's a lot of that, you know, it's fixing these bad habits. And I'm trying a lot of this stuff like with more beginner students of mine and it's working, you know, like there's that too. I've been teaching guitar again, which I haven't done in like 10 years. And I think that's also why I've been working on my own playing and why I've, I've been developing these things, you know. I've been trying a little bit of, of teaching my students songs that are outside of their current capability and using that as an as the exercises, you know, songs that they like to play. Like, you know, I, I got Recently, I got a couple of students from the Sinister Gates Guitar School and they all like Avenged Sevenfold. So I, I like, OK, what's your favorite solo? And I take that solo and I, mm, this phrase right here will, you know, will fix your picking. So I'll give him that. And then they get super excited when they do it. You know, I'm like, just play this one phrase for a week. Even like the most beginner guys are happy to do it because it's something that it sounds good to them when they play. It gets them excited. You know, it's cool.
0: Sick. That's also a really good technique for tracking guitars. Typically, when tracking a guitar player, you'll notice whether it's rhythm or lead, there will be like certain parts in the riff where you can just tell there's like a slight hiccup in their technique. Like something about it doesn't make it smooth. And I guess you could either punch it in, which is one way to go about it, or the way that I found sounds the most natural is kind of like what you just said you take the moment where that fuck up happens every time and basically take like the four notes before it and the four notes after it and make a loop out of that until that hiccup no longer happens that totally fixes the flow and even if you do a punch in right there of just that moment you're getting the momentum into it and the momentum out of it and it doesn't actually sound like a like a punch, it sounds completely natural. But I've noticed that when I when I make those loops for guitar players that I'm recording, if you give them long enough, like, I mean, by long enough, I mean like an hour, get up and leave, like go, go eat lunch or whatever, walk the dog, come back, and they're still playing the same loop. Eventually, it'll be like the problem's gone. They fixed it. It's
2: sort of based on that. You know, on my own recordings, on coming up with parts here on my demos that I can't really play and then looping them and being like, oh, I can play it now. And well, now that I can play this, by the way, I can also play this other thing that I wouldn't think before because I didn't have that technique. You know, it's it, it's cool. So it was sort of based on that. The, the guy that I, I, I first like saw do that was Logan. I was recording some stuff with him back in the day. Logan Mater? Yeah. I was recording some okay. stuff with him back in the day. It was for the Metal Gear track, uh, soundtrack. And he, I couldn't get this part, so he just looped me. He just walked out and I started playing. I'm like, oh, I can do it now. Not only can I do it now, I can do it better now. So... You know, it, it, the thing, man, is like in theory the whole repetition thing. It, everybody gets it, but actually sitting and doing it, it takes a ridiculous amount of concentration. You know, with with what I'm doing here with my with my new, I don't know, my my new exercises, so to speak. It's not new exercises, just new approach to it. I actually put a timer. You know, it sucks because when I'm doing like 25 minutes at that point, you really want to continue doing it because you're doing it real well. But no matter what, I stop then, you know, and I, I go, I chill, I
0: come back and it's easier to do it. Oh, just because of that optimum range thing. John, what were you about to say?
1: I think that it's quite important that people learn to take breaks. I think that's one thing that guitar players don't generally do. They get frustrated and keep going. So I think that having a timer on when you're practicing something, and if you haven't got it at that point, just walk away from it for a little bit regather your thoughts go and do something else or the opposite even if you've got it then don't keep going because you're just eventually getting frustrated anyway
2: yeah i hate keeping drawing par- parallels but it is like working out you know like if we, it's better to like when you work out it's better to have intervals you know you, you don't keep going you know you know the more i philosophize about it the more i'm like it's the same thing He's working out and and becoming better at music, you
0: know? Actually, man, I use the working out analogy a lot, even for when people are developing their ears in uh, mixing for EQing. When people get frustrated by EQ, you know, they overdo it or sit there for six hours trying to EQ a guitar and then it sounds like garbage, but they've really only been EQing things for like a month or two Remind them that they should look at it kind of like if they started lifting weights. If they lifted weights three times a week for six months, they might start to see a difference. And then after a year, there will be some difference. But maybe three years later, there will be a major difference. But the improvements, uh, they take time and they're very, very slow. It's not the same analogy that you're using, but I'm just, I guess I'm just saying that exercise analogies work really well. For music,
2: yeah, and to that point too, that stuff's been working to help some of my students because you talk about year. I mean, it's it's related. Uh, it's been working also with my students for to the more beginning people with with intervals because that's something that's really hard to explain to a beginner. You know, like like intervals is something that's so inherited in in a professional musician that you're like, oh, well, how did I learn that? You know, how did I learn what a second sounds like?
1: I actually think a lot of people struggle with that though as well, even, you know, that uh, even with professional people. Like
2: some people don't know what a third is. (laughs) You know, I mean, obviously over the years, I've learned to tell people it's fret three, dude. But uh, (laughs) but like, I don't want my students to be like that. So, I mean, even the very beginners, I'm like, you know, you're playing a power chord. All right, play one note at a time. All right, that is a fifth, you know. Now play half step under that. All right, well, that's a diminished fifth. That's a tritone. See the difference in sound? See how it feels? All right, that was the power chord. So that's the first interval I teach them. You know, I don't go first, second, third, major third. No, I don't. I just take the ones that they're playing, you know. Oh, see right there on that part, you're doing this C and this E. That is a major third. Now, if you go one fret back, it's a minor third now. See the difference? And I get them to like time themselves Playing that stuff on the guitar, all right, tell yourself now fifth, sixth, you know, and it's working because I quiz them and and then they know, you know, people that didn't even know what intervals were like two weeks ago. It's great.
1: I think there's like a, a thing, a thing with guitar players as well. It's like, I find that a lot of guitar players can like give you the names of all of these intervals, but they couldn't actually describe to
2: you how it sounded. That's the most important thing you know, like exactly. knowing, knowing what the interval sounds like. It's, uh, it's, you know, like when I say, I don't know, a sharp 11 chord, I, I, like I'm, I say the name and I hear it in my head, you know, that's the most, that's the most important thing.
0: One of the best ways to learn that is what you're saying is to take stuff that people are already working on because they have something to reference in their head. Like when you're learning sight singing, the way that they Teach intervals is for you to take sections of a song that you know or that you're very, very familiar with, and then tie that to the interval, like the Star Wars theme or something like that. Just something that's that you totally know what it sounds like. You would recognize it no matter what. Like you have that sound in your head, and then tie that to the name. That's that's like the traditional method of teaching people how to do that. So applying it to guitar makes perfect sense. And I always felt like ear training on guitar was, and I studied it in school. So, and I always felt like it was lagging behind like the sight singers and like the real ear training, the real ear training would use all those techniques that you're talking about. And those people would really understand intervals. But then on guitar, it was just basically about naming them. But not about how they sounded, and it's just seemed like a major disconnect.
2: Because mm-hmm. at the end I of the day, what agree.
0: difference does it? What difference does it make if you don't know what it sounds like?
2: That's the thing, man. We talked about this on the last podcast. You know, like it's understanding that theory is just naming things, but it's good to know it. You know, I mean, it won't kill it. Like when I when I hear someone say. Things like, oh, I just play by ear, theory would get in the way. No, I absolutely disagree with that. That does not happen. It's just the other way. A power chord doesn't sound any less powerful because you know it's a fifth. You know, (laughs) like it just sounds the same way. You just know it's a fifth. It's nothing but good for you to. And what you said to, to songs that you know, you know, like, even though I'm starting to do that with my students, that is how I learned it back in college. And it's funny because some intervals, because it's not in something I listen to a lot, I still reference back to my college reference. A good example is the major sixth. To this day, I cannot sing you a major sixth without thinking of La Traviata, the opera. Mm -hmm. that's the only way I can sing a major sixth I cannot (laughs) just bust it out without thinking of La Traviata which was my reference back in college those references, I, I don't know somewhere, you're reaching for them whether or not you try even I have a friend that has perfect pitch and he doesn't know how to explain because he's not really a musician, so he's like, I don't know Like I hear an E and I just hear Wasted Ears by Iron Maiden, the first note I'm like, it doesn't work like that. If I hear an E flat and you tell me it's wasted years, I'm gonna believe you, you know? So, I, but he, somehow in his head, he references to the songs and it works, you know? I tried, that doesn't work for me, like with with the exact pitch. You know, like I can hear a G, a G major, someone play a G major, Oh, you know, that's a G major. But if the guitar is two and a half step down, that's a G flat, flat major. And I don't know that.
0: I think perfect pitch is something that you're born with. You can't really develop it.
2: But you can develop the intervals. So that's the, as yes. close as you can get, you know.
1: Or alternatively, I think it also depends on the language that you speak. Because I think that, you know, some languages retain the need for using pitch more so than English.
2: Yeah, like Chinese.
1: Exactly, yeah. So I think that mainly it's just because we don't really use it from a young age. I think that maybe everyone is born with relative to perfect pitch at some point, and then it's just lost. It's kind of like a superpower that goes away when you're 18 months old or something.
0: <laughs> well, there's a, a lot of uh, scientific research about the idea that the language you speak actually shapes the way your brain works, the way that your thoughts actually process are shaped by your language. And if you've ever seen the movie Arrival, uh, which is great, it's a very, very interesting take on perception of time based on language. Anyways, that's a side note. But yeah, I actually think that you're right. I don't know how right you are, but I think you're right. I'm always
2: right. (laughs) When it comes to the language thing that you're saying as a bilingual person, I've read about it a lot, quite a bit what you're talking about. And I can tell you it is true. It is very true because I essentially at this point lived half my life in Brazil, half my life here. And when I speak English, I literally feel like a different person than when I speak Portuguese. My ideas change, how I present ideas change. There's things that you can say in Portuguese To a person that if you said it in English, they would be offended, but it's perfectly normal (laughs) in Portuguese. I feel that after living in America for as long as I have, I feel that Brazilian people are arrogant, even when they're not, you know, like I, 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 I get there with my American mind and, and everything. And I start seeing the way people talk to each other. I'm like, that's rude you know, but, but it's not, it's just, it's just the way that we communicate.
0: Just because the English has already, has shaped your mind in a certain way.
2: No, in a very, very, very broad way. Like, like what you're saying of, you know, depending on what language you speak, that is 100% true. Sometimes I even think that I have different opinions in Portuguese and
0: in English. (laughs) Ah, schizophrenic. What language do you dream in?
2: Everything is in English. At this point, I'm an American through and through. And and a lot of that, as we talked about before, is by design. So I dream in English. If I hear Portuguese at first, like that first time that it hits my ear, sounds like a foreign language, even though, you know, it is my my, my mother language. But I don't speak it. I don't have any Brazilian friends here. I talk to my buddies in Brazil on, on text or whatever, but I, I don't use it. You know, I don't use it. And I, I again, it's by design, you know. I I, kind of don't want to sound as rude as people do in Portuguese.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I actually noticed the exact same thing with uh, with Spanish. I learned Spanish first. It's like certain emotions or like opinions that are charged with certain emotions in other languages. It's just the way people communicate. This happens to my dad too with Hebrew. Like people think he's yelling all the time (laughs) because Israelis, (laughs) the way they speak is aggressive, but they're not. So if you're, if you don't understand the language or how they are, you'll think that they're always fighting, but they're not, they're just communicating. It's just, they're just dialed to a different frequency basically.
2: Yeah, man. It's funny. It was this week. My mom told me something and I'm like, mom, like you realize I'm 37 years old. Like you're really like being a mom right now and like getting into my shit. But then I'm like, no, 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 that's just how Brazilian people are. That's she didn't really mean it like that. It was a comment. It was just, uh, she, I can't remember what it was, but it was a comment. She wasn't implied that I had to change it. She just made a comment and I'm like, oh no, no. But, but the way they express themselves in Brazil is like, you have to change that right now. You know, it happens, man. <laughs> uh, I also remember, I, I, can't, I, I can't remember if he was Ukrainian or Russian, but someone for either Ukraine or Russia once told me that some colors that we call blue, they call green. You know, they just call a different shade of green. Like if there's any Russian people listen to it, please, you know, confirm or deny this. But like, you know, we call it, I don't know, Navy blue, you guys call it Navy green or whatever. You just, so you see it differently because of your language.
0: God, I hope that's not true. It's going to make it really hard. To live life knowing that.
2: (laughs) And I can't remember who exactly... I got a couple of Russian friends. I'm trying to remember who said it. I can't remember who he was. So I won't like throw anyone under the bus. But I want to Google this later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you're learning music, just out of curiosity, because you learn music all the time for a living, do you think about it differently now than you did, say, when uh, before you, I guess reformed your brain with like English as the framework. Like, do you think about songs that you're learning for a band you're going to do a tour with? Like, does it affect that side of your thinking at all? Uh,
2: I've learned to like songs that I didn't like, you know, like I played with bands like that I didn't think were good. Then I, I play the song so many times, I'm like, you know what? Now I like this song, you know? One thing that is happening, but this is happening, I don't know. This is not new, but it's going back to, like, some of my favorite songs and, like, having opinions on the writing of those. You know, like, songs that, to me, are untouchable, but then hearing them be like, hmm, I wouldn't have gone to that chord here. You know? <laughs> That's been happening. Like, I don't want to ever disagree with Iron Maiden. You know, but it, it happens, you know, or I'm like, oh, I know what they were thinking here. That kind of stuff happens. Here's something that connects both that you guys would probably love to hear. And this is the case for most people from where I'm from in South America in general. When I grew up listening to all these songs, we didn't speak English. We had no idea what anyone is saying. And most, you know, especially you know, after, you know, the internet, no, you can find translated lyrics, but they're not that well translated. Even if you translate, it's not the same thing. There are songs that I went back to after listening, after knowing English, some of them I think are awfully stupid now. And I'm like, fuck, how did I like this (laughs) song so much? But I'm not going to give any examples of that, but I'll give you a positive example, dude. Still Got the Blues (laughs) by Gary Moore. Oh, what a song. Yeah. Oh, oh, what a song. I I learned to love that song like everybody else. And as a guitar player, I learned it. And it's Gary Moore and he's a badass, period. There was no connection with what he was saying. Then recently, maybe a year ago, this is maybe maybe two years ago. I don't know, but it's very recent. I'm driving and that song comes on the radio. Dude, I started crying because I'm like, oh, holy shit. Now I get it. The guitar solo is just him, like, it's just him expressing what he just said on the lyrics. Now I get that connection. I never did. See, I'm telling you that and getting, you know, and getting shivers. Like,
0: (laughs) what did you think it meant back then before you spoke
2: English? It didn't matter. We're not thinking about the lyrics. It's just a melody. That's what it means to me. You know, but then now I'm hearing this guy sing that melody. Now, even, you know, as, as the pitch gets higher, he gets more, you know, it's like gut wrenching. Like this entire motion of the blues that you guys are probably used to because you, because it's your native language. I had none of that. Then when I, dude, I started crying like a baby and I know, and I've known this song my whole life.
0: It's something interesting about lyrics that I've thought about a lot is... If you were to read most lyrics, like say a band like Korn, for instance, if you were to read their lyrics, it'd be like, is this third grade? And I think that, I think that that's true for a lot of lyrics and a lot of great songs. It's like It's like bad poetry that kind of makes no sense when you just read it on the page. But then when you hear it with the person actually performing it, and it's charged with emotion, then it, it actually means something that is totally beyond what the actual words are. And I just use corn as an example because their lyrics are so basic. They're like the most basic lyrics in metal, basically. I realize not everybody listening is a corn fan. I'm choosing them too as the example because nobody can say that that dude doesn't like feel everything when he's vocalizing.
2: Absolutely.
0: But I think that's the perfect example. I actually think that lyrics, uh, without the feeling behind them, basically mean zero.
1: I want to take this a little bit further because this is there's an interesting film that sort of takes this on. The name of the film is called Waking Life. Have either of you guys seen it? No, but you've but told me not. about
0: it like ninety times.
1: I need to tell you again about it again because you need to watch
0: it. I think I have seen it. Was is it like a? pseudo animation
1: yeah it's like drawn over the top there's one
0: particular section a long time ago
1: yeah there's one particular section of this movie and it's called words are inert and it's really interesting because it goes on to how a language when it's going to explain like physical objects and, and simple stuff it's like it's a good way to sort of talk to everyone but the moment that emotion gets involved like the word love there's no real way to know if another human being is actually fully understood what you're talking about, because the way that that emotion is felt is going to be different between every person. So the, the whole concept of lyrics being felt emotionally by the original person that sang it is actually pretty true because you can, you, you will never be able to portray the exact same emotion that the original
0: songwriter had. That's probably the only way to communicate it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and it's probably why uh, why Bill started crying when he heard the uh, <laughs> when he heard the Gary Moore song because it was just it was the uh, Gary Moore like for me it's the loner but the the heartfelt emotion that I feel when I listen to him play music is just insane it's just phenomenal so you know it's like I don't think that anyone could play Gary Moore songs as well as Gary Moore because of that emotional attachment that he had towards it.
2: One particular detail that I can describe of the feeling that happened on this was when the guitar solo came in. Because like, I learned the guitar solo as a kid, you know, I know every note of it, I know how it sounds. And I even know like his phrasing and all that. The thing is, the thing that hit me really in the gut was him finishing, and I still got the blues for you, and starting the solo. Because think about it, as a Brazilian, Still got the blues, the phrase, didn't make the sense to me that it makes you guys. The blues as in the sadness that he's feeling for her. Yep. To me and to most people in Brazil, still got the blues mean, oh, I still got the blues. I can play the blues. <laughs> That's what I thought that meant my entire life. And the way he delivers it, you know, like he's, he's going up so high and talking about how much he hurts. And then at the end, and I still got the blues for you. And then the guitar comes in, it's, it's him crying, you yeah. know, but that is the connection that didn't exist until I understood what he was saying on the lyrics, you know, to me, it was still got the blues for you. Here's my blues. See the difference in the approach. different. Yeah. I mean, I use that song as an example, but there's reverse examples of that. There are songs that I can't stand now that I fucking used to love, Motley Crue. You know, like that. They were, they were my favorite bands for a while. Now, some of the songs I hear, I'm like, ah, really? Like, that's what they're saying?
0: I mean, I knew it was. (laughs) What changed changed there? It's not like any of them are going to listen to this.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm not. I'll give
0: you an example.
2: I'm sure if they listen, they will agree. Think of something like Girls, 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 right? At the time that I grew up, that was super cool. These guys are badass. They're going to the club and there's all these girls. Now I listen to it and I can tell how fake it is. You know, like, like I can tell, check her out, Tommy. You know, like that kind of stuff <laughs> that translated away from me back when I grew up. That was super cool, like almost scary. These guys are so badass. Now I can, I can imagine them in the studio fucked up nonetheless, but being like, Hey, all right, let's try one, two, three, check it out, Tommy. <laughs> 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 that comes through and it comes through in a lot of that stuff, you know. So, I mean, it's not that I don't like the song, but I lost a little bit of respect for it. In the same way that now Still Got the Blues was taken to a different level, you know. And then there's bands that I, even now that I understand what they say, I, I still don't have any idea what the lyrics mean. And I loved them <laughs> before and I still do now like Dream Theater. <laughs> you know, I listened to Metropolis Part 1. That's one of my favorite songs of all times now. And I understand as much as I did back then. You know, only I understand the words he's saying. I still don't know what the fuck it is about. And I just like the song.
1: I actually just re-bought Scenes from a Memory a few days ago on vinyl because I am also a huge Dream Theater fan and I've not gone out my way to learn the lyrics to that album. I know what it's about, but I... Maybe I should, because maybe the songs will get better, or maybe they'll get worse. Maybe I should just leave it, actually, <laughs> just in case.
2: It seems from a Memory" particular came out at a time that I spoke some English, so so I kind of I kind of got what was going on a little bit better, even though I still had to le- read the booklet. You know, like I, I had yeah. to read it as as they're singing. I kind of got that. By the way, that album is quite possibly my favorite album of all times that scenes from a memory yes
1: yeah it is like i i listened to it uh, uh just on youtube a couple of weeks ago specifically the track home and it's just so good <laughs> like it brought me straight back to the first time that i listened to it, it as i like, right, got to buy it on vinyl it's still incredible
2: yeah that's another example of like becoming a better musician seeing things differently when that album came out i remember that they were claiming a lot of influence of metallica from load and I couldn't hear it back then. I'm like, what? Now I totally hear it. You know, I'm like, oh, they were definitely listening to that kind, that that Metallica when they were listening to the, when they were writing this album. You know, now it like it jumps out of the speaker. Now Dream Theater is a good example because I I heard them before a lot of a lot of the bands that influenced them. So I, I'll go back to Yes. Oh, that's where they stole this from. Go back to Rush. Oh, that's where they stole this from. You know, so a lot a lot a lot of these things started happening too as I be, started becoming a better musician. Now I I really hear how load scenes from memory were back in the days I didn't.
0: Actually, interestingly enough, at Dream Theater. I think that that band has always been super like clear with how they adopt their influences. Yeah. Whereas with some artists you can't really tell or you can kind of like hear the style. Like I think Dream Theater are such good musicians, like players and thinkers that when they adopt something from an influence, they like play it in the style like...
1: Of dream theater,
0: basically. Yeah, Yeah, but it's in the style of dream theater, but you can hear the influence like done exactly right. Yeah. As opposed to like where lesser musicians mangle it up a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Dream
0: theaters, they're so good that it sounds like, it doesn't sound like a replica. No. But it almost sounds like something that, That band they're taking it from could have written it on that album, like one of those Metallica riffs you're talking about could have been an actual Metallica riff. Oh yeah, and I don't mean that to say that they're stealing or anything. I just think they're that good as good as music. Yeah,
2: Yeah.
1: actually, yeah. Just to you know, you say that that sounded like Load. I always got the feeling that Octavarium sounded a bit
2: Musey. Musey, yeah. The band Muse, yeah, had that Muse vibe to it, definitely. And I mean, I'm sure Mike Portnoy wouldn't deny that because he's like his favorite band now or whatever.
0: Good. He's got good taste. (laughs) I think I heard John Petrucci saying something about Muse, about them being like the most musical band in rock or something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised.
2: Well, dude, I mean, it's not the same thing, but I think they're the closest thing to a rush, to a modern rush.
0: Or Queen or whatever, yeah.
2: Well, I call them Rush because they're a trio, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Because they they have the mainstream reach, you know, they have the, the songs are not commercial, you know, it's super artistic, that, that's, those guys are badass. I think a lot of the credit that goes to Tool should actually go to Muse.
0: If Muse had only come out about seven years earlier, the credit would go to them.
2: Yeah, it's so much more musical, so much more everything, you know?
0: From what I understand, someone I know that worked at their label at that time basically said that they came along at the time when the industry was destroyed by Napster and nobody knew what to do with them. They still got huge, but they just had some bad timing. And if they had just, like, shown up, like, five years earlier or something— They probably would have been like the biggest band in the world, but they just happened to be making artistic music in a time period where the industry had no idea how to push anything because it was falling to pieces and they still did great. Yeah, they still are probably one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah, but just imagine if they had gotten big when the industry was... It, dude, it was only like three years before that, that the industry was huge. Imagine
1: if they had that Oasis kind of budget. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the Moose budget...
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like oh, man. Something yeah. like that, like an Oasis type of thing. And do you know what the problem
1: was, actually? It's because they're from Devon. So it took people an extra long time to actually see them because Devon is like all the way over there somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Over where? I have no idea what you're even saying. Where?
1: Devon is a county in England. It's in the the foot bit, you know, as you go really down south. So it's kind of like out of the way. No one really plays shows there. It's one of those places where it's never a major city. You know, you go to London, you go to Birmingham, you might go to Bristol, but you never get as far as Devon, which is like Exeter and Plymouth. And yeah, you hardly ever play down there. So that's probably part of the reason why they might have actually been around earlier than that,
0: but it's probably just because they were from Devon. I think they got together in high school. I, they they were around for a while. Uh, Brown, I have a question for you about England. Go on. Why is it raining all the time? <laughs> no, I, I know why that. I studied the weather. You know, we talk about Sweden all the time and or places like Seattle, but England is responsible for some of the best rock music and of all time for decades now you know starting with the Beatles all the way through to shit like Muse like England basically I think has been like the the leader in innovative rock for the most part overall like by the numbers why do you think that is like what the hell's up
1: so obviously the United States Leo in particular was you know invented the solid body Stratocaster which and telecaster and broadcaster and all those. But um, I think that that was obviously, that's obviously a really big reason as to why we had this rock and metal style of music. But in England, we were getting the Marshalls and the Laneys and the higher gain amps, you know, as opposed to like the clean Fender. I think that that might maybe have had something to do with it. But honestly, I couldn't tell you.
2: I agree. And the thing is, so Sweden has... It's, it's kind of easy to pinpoint why Sweden is so good at music. It's because of yeah. the education, the way, they, the way they, they're presented with music since they were kids.
0: Yeah, it's super obvious.
2: The thing that, that I don't get about England is this. You guys don't have like a million underground bands. Every band there gets huge in any genre. Think of my main genre, power metal, okay? There's no British bands except for Power Quest, the one that I played, and Dragon Force. The one band that took the style to, main tra- to mainstream, you know, but that's one style. If you take this more modern metal that you guys play, what are the better bands? There are the British bands too. And then, you know, and then you have Maiden, you, you know, you can go back, of course, but that's, that's too easy. the new wave of British heavy metal. The thing is consistently, you know, there's a genre, then the British band comes out and it's better than everybody. <laughs> Just look at it, man. It's, it's very interesting. There's actually quite
1: a lot of, well, there was a lot of power metal here. There's Glory Hammer, if you've ever heard of them, quite relatively new bands. Uh, there was one in particular in the early 2000s that I used to really like that I don't, they, they weren't that popular, but they were called Balance of Power. Is that Lance
2: King's first album? Yes.
1: Yeah, he's my buddy, yeah. The album was called Perfect Balance. I think it came out in 2003, but it was actually given to me by my guitar tutor around the same time he gave
2: me scenes from a memory, funnily enough. Oh yeah, because they were kinda in the same genre. Yeah.
1: And yeah, I mean yeah, it was one of those genres that was fairly I guess quite big at the time. But yeah, Dragon Force were obviously the leaders in it from the UK
2: anyway. Glory Hammer and Aostorm are both, you know, of Chris Bolus's band. And isn't he Scottish? I think he's Scottish.
1: <laughs> I think he's Scottish, yeah. I think he's from Perth area, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just played Japan with Aostorm Storm and Sweden with Glory Hammer. They're really good friends of ours. But but, but yeah, same point. You know that, that even Glory Hammer, they're unusually big for that underground power metal new scene. You know, like because if you think of another band, it's Twilight Force. That's my my old singer's old band. That's like the next best biggest band, but they're like way way below Glory Hammer. Or something, And they're Swedish too. Twilight Force is Swedish too. So, so I don't know, man. England, England has something. And it, it, it's honestly the same with your band, John. I, you know, I, I have to admit before uh, EL told me about the podcast, I wasn't that familiar. I knew the name and I knew your work, but then I went and listened to you guys. It's not what I listen to mostly, but I became sort of obsessed with you for a week, like past week. I'm <laughs> like, oh, this is fucking awesome. And that's why I think it's cool about this podcast, because for a long time, for guitar playing was like rhythm and lead, you know, and, and then, well, Jimi Hendrix kind of blended the two of them. And, but since him, it, it's, it's either you very good at rhythm or very good at lead in you guys, your rhythms could be leads. The parts that you're playing as vocals are happening, they're probably just as hard as the leads, you know, and that is a thing that I haven't seen in a while that's really cool, you know, and your rhythms are not not like open chords or chugga-chugga, it's orchestrated, it's well thought out. That is really badass, you know, it's really cool, man.
1: Thank you, man. I'm glad you I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure that you could probably we were talking about influences earlier. I'm pretty sure that it's pretty apparent who our influences are, but I think that, you know, wearing influences on your sleeve is okay as long as it doesn't necessarily sound like the the band that you're trying to,
2: you know, you don't. And and there's other bands in your genre that I can't stand, honestly. <laughs> there are many, many, many. There's other bands that, you know, that I'm like, oh, what the fuck? It seems like everything has a purpose. Like, I'm sure that is the case, you know, like there's not a single note that you played for anything other than a musical reason. At no point you're trying to show off. Look how cool this riff is, you know? And I, th- I think that's what That's what I get from a lot of that genre sometimes is, you know, you could have gotten that point across without using your thumb, you know. But but in your case, it's like everything has to be there. That's kind of like my philosophy with guitar solos as well. Like,
1: I love a good solo, but it's like sometimes people just do them to show off. Do you know what I mean? It's when it's what you were talking about earlier, like the Gary Moore approach, like the emotional connection that comes with it. And I think that that's always the way that I've kind of written music is that I kind of want it to, for someone to be attached to it rather than me just going like this constantly.
0: I think what Bill's saying about there's no wasted notes is very accurate. I'm familiar with how John writes because I did a class with him uh in 2013 on songwriting for Creative Live where we took a monument's track and like basically analyzed it like forensic detectives or something. And, you know, correct me if if I'm wrong or you've changed this, but the way John writes is that Every single part of every song is based on a motif that is in that song, almost like a pop song where, you know, in a good pop song, there's maybe three good ideas, but they're just used in different ways that sound incredible every time you go to a new section, but it's still just based on that original idea. And with Monuments stuff, no matter how complicated it's getting, it still always goes back to those original motifs, which could just be like two or three notes. but that's why it sounds so like song oriented and uh, organic. That and they're British
2: <laughs> <That too. laughs> Actually, our, uh, our singer
0: is American, actually.
2: Oh
1: yeah, we've ruined it. <laughs> but you write the music, right? It's me and me and Ollie, yeah, mostly. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, just like that, right? Like, I think every every guitarist to a degree writes that way because, you know, like, guitar players have licks, you know? How many times have we heard the lick in, you know, <laughs> in so many songs? So I think that people do write that there, but maybe they're just not, like, utilizing it in the most, like, they're not actually thinking about how they can do that lick in completely different ways. Like, imagine you're playing, like, a D chord on, you know, second fret on the G, second fret on the E, and then third fret on your B string versus playing the D chord as the bars on the fifth fret. It has a different sort of tonality to it. It's not the same. It's the same chord, the same notes, but it sounds different. And I think that often people don't think about those aspects of their playing where they can play something in a different position on the neck and it will the the portrayal of that part will come across differently it's like the difference between me speaking something to you, me whispering something to you, and me screaming something to you. It could be the same words, but the meaning's different. The expression's different.
2: What you're saying is very true. And also, like, this takes me to something I actually wanted to talk about. Most of my career, I've played for other bands, classic bands from the 80s, right? and the, Or 90s or whatever I'm playing. In other words, it's not modern playing. It's not the kind of playing that you do that we're just talking about. And it's very interesting to see how rhythm guitar is approached by bands like that, by musicians of that time, because it's almost there. Like there was, and I'm to blame for this too. Make no mistake. Like, my, but it's almost <laughs> like like there's complete emphasis on the lead guitar, and the rhythm guitar is just a thing. Like it's just like you know, it doesn't like you're saying it doesn't matter if you play the. You know, the E power chord on the seventh fret or the A or the open E, you know, or if you, if you add the bass or, or in some extreme cases, it doesn't even matter if you, if you're playing or just an open chord, or if you do, or just, all these things are not even like talked about in a lot of these gigs that I do, you know, as long as you're playing the chord and the chord is there and it's not very tight and all that. I started actually paying attention to what I was playing on rhythm guitar when I started doing Morbid Angel songs with David Vincent, because then I would be like, well, can I just play this like here? No, no. No, it's right here. You have to play it like here. I'm like but but it's the same fucking note. Well, yeah, but but here here's the difference. And then I was like, okay. And all of that came basically from that. And in, in my own band, you know, my my band is as power metal as it gets, as cliché as it gets. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm basically trying to to rewrite Stradivarius and Halloween in my band. But I do take a lot of that approach to the riffs. And reviews have noticed that, you know, oh, a power metal band actually cares about the rhythm guitar. But the thing is, as I'm saying, you know, I play with these bands, there's no, they really don't care what you're playing on the rhythm, yet that's what you're doing most of the time. You're literally playing solos 10% of the time. And it creates a psychological mind fuck on you, at least on me, it does, where you can play a song really well, the rhythm part, then you mess up the solo, then you hate yourself. But it's like, the solo is like five seconds. That's probably when people went out to get a beer, you know, like the part that you were actually
0: (laughs) playing, it was good. I mean, the music from that era, rhythm guitar was kind of, it was always like there was a lead guitarist and a rhythm guitarist and the rhythm guitarist was like the joke. Yeah, that is exactly how I saw it my whole life. I was like, why
2: do people talk about Izzy straddling? Oh, that's why. You know, but back in the day, I was like, why do they care about Izzy? Slash is there still, you know? <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting,
1: really, because like, you know, ACDC, like everyone obviously knows Angus, but Malcolm was kind of the powerhouse behind that bat. It just sounded so fucking good. And that was him. That's what made that. Good. Obviously, Angus was great as well, but Malcolm was the powerhouse.
0: And that's such simple music, but I've never heard anybody ever be able to play it well.
2: No, because it's so simple. People think it's too simple, and that's the case with a lot of things.
1: I think it's like it goes to the the space between the notes. Like the problem is, is that we focus on the notes too much, and we're not listening to the nuances of the expressions like um like i say the space between the notes like the exact gap what notes are ringing into those notes like the the little bits that we don't really pay attention to we're just so focused on what that chord is or what that note is that we've missed the essence of what
2: made it good yeah exactly that's part of my theory that musicians are unable to listen to music without being musicians (laughs) have you like, have you guys like, no, I'm sure this has come up. Everybody does. But have you honestly ever tried to listen to music without being a a musician? It it, it can't, you know, you put, uh, I don't know, listen to the first Michael Jackson album. You know, the second you hear a horn, oh, that's a horn. Like it's impossible.
0: I can say this, that now that I've been doing business for a few years and like making music isn't like the priority. It's almost like the language thing we were talking about earlier when music, making music was like the number one thing in my life. I was thinking in the language of a musician always, but now that that's not, I'm starting to listen like a listener again, even though I still have the perspective of a musician, like I can turn that on at any time. Like, I've been able to take it in, like, just as someone listening to music, and it's really cool. That's cool. I've actually been enjoying it again for the first time in over a decade well, over a decade, <laughs> maybe two decades, actually. <laughs> Only this year did I start to actually become a music fan again. And I'm convinced that it's similar to the language conversation. If you're making music all the time and playing it, Thinking about it, it becomes how you think about everything. And so when you hear it, that's the language you're thinking of it in. When you're not doing that, you're taking it in more on an emotional level, like just for what it is, which is pretty cool, actually.
2: I miss that, man. I miss that.
0: Just <laughs> stop playing for a few years. There's, <laughs> I, I. That's the secret.
2: What makes it even worse is like, I, you know, as I told you before, I'm trying to learn production a little bit. And... You know, in my own time when when I'm not working, I don't really listen to metal music. I listen to a lot more like electronic music, you know, like I like pop. But it's getting to a point where like it was yesterday I was listening to the an album that I love from zeg, It's called True Colors. And I started hearing these effects and these things. and imagine the knobs turning on the screen. You know, it's like, like, like you hear this, like this, this filter, there was a thing with the filter. I, I, I swear I could see like the graphic doing this, like, (laughs) stop, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be like that.
0: It's hard, man. I like to say that everything in life, there's a price. There's no free rides in nature, basically. Like, you know, if, uh, if there's a medication that's like too good to be true, there's going to be some fucked up side effect, anything that you decide to learn requires you to sacrifice something else, like there's nothing in life that doesn't have a (laughs) price. And the price of getting better at music or production is that your ability to enjoy it changes for the worse, I think.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's the price you pay. I don't know a single person who makes music who hasn't said this. And I'm talking about like, everybody I've ever met in my entire life or talked to on these podcasts or like toured with, like every single person says that. So I kind of think that's just, that's like the price of admission is you have to give up being a music fan like you were.
2: Enjoying it. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much
1: it. <laughs> the, only, the only music I found that I can still thoroughly enjoy is the music that I loved as a kid before I played an instrument.
0: Same, like the Beatles or something.
2: No, 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 no. How old were you, John? (laughs) I love the Beatles, fuck you. I'm I'm 34. (laughs) No, 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 no. When you were listening to this music. Oh, right. Yeah. So between the
1: ages of, I want to say two, three, up until the age of about 12.
2: Oh, back then. Okay. There's a theory that the music that you listen to at 14 stays with you for the rest of your life like as the, the one that touches you, specifically 14 for Man, I read. And the fucked up thing about that is that for me, on specifically my 14th birthday, I got a, a lot of power metal CDs because I asked, because that's what I was trying to get into. And dude, all of the albums that I go to when I want to listen to metal and stuff that, you know, you know, when I kind of like just appreciate, enjoy, like you're talking about, all of them were given to me on my 14th birthday, dude. Like to this day, those albums touch me in a way that no other, like it was Halloween, Keeper of the Seven Keys 1 and 2, Stradivarius episode, Dream Theater, Images and Words, Dream Theater, Awake, uh, Gamma Ray, Land of the Free. All these are like my favorite albums and I was giving them as gifts for my 14th birthday. And there's a fucking book that talks about that.
0: I'm familiar with these theories and like I halfway believe them. But then I also think there's another side to it, which is uh, that typically as people get older, they get stuck in their ways. So they just stop looking for new things. And I know you've got to know people like this, too, who they say, oh, music used to be good. It sucks now. But honestly, they haven't tried to find any good new music In about 10 or 15 years, anyways. So, of course, they think the music from the past is better. They don't, they're not keeping up with anything great from now. Hmm. I think that's part of it, too. I think, like, I think it's both. I definitely think that there's something real that happens when you're in your formative years where your brain's like an open book, whatever you imprint on it becomes lodged there. And that's true for like all kinds of different things from like weird OCD behaviors to like sexual fetishes to <laughs> tastes. Yeah. That it all gets imprinted in a weird way at a young age. But I also think that there's the behavioral side to it, which is that people just get lazy over time.
1: I'm in perverts grim
0: yeah, and you don't strike me as one of those people. You're Every time I talk to you, you're like into something new.
2: Yeah, I do have my biases with metal specifically. I think I talked about this before
0: too. Yeah, you have your biases, but you're still like, you'll say stuff, you'll be very open about what your favorite shit is. But like you'll also, like you just did, appreciate what's cool about monuments as opposed to a lot of people from the older school who won't even give shit a chance it's a big difference.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting thing that happens. I think on my age group, which is also John's, but, but 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 some of us like that listen to like this older metal. It's all hardcore, all metalcore. You know, it's all lumped into this one thing because they don't care to actually go and listen to it. But again, you know, there's the other side of it. I honestly cannot have the same connection with like I know that Tesseract is a much better band technically than Halloween was but you will never touch me the same way. I can't do it. But I can go listen to them both. I can appreciate them both, which which a lot of people, you know, of the old school metal guys can't. You know, they'll be like, ah, this is, you know, this is not true metal. They don't have long hair. That's a big one. People say that a lot. (laughs) I remember
0: that. Still happens, dude, to this day. That still
2: happens? People still give a shit about that? Oh, yeah. Dude, honestly, that's why I have my hair long. Because I don't want to ever miss out on gigs. Because I can get, <laughs> you know, I can get a pop gig with long hair, but certain metal gigs I can't get with short hair. He
1: does have a point, you know. That's actually probably still a thing. I, I mean, it's a bit weird, but yeah.
2: Well, it is, and especially on, on the niche of metal that I thrive these days, you know. So th- there's a lot. There's a lot of these older bands that are no long hair, so you know we don't we don't care, you know, because it's not metal. So, uh, you know, but but I can put my hair in a ponytail and go play with Katy Perry. So, well, actually, if I got that gig, I probably would wear my hair down. <laughs> I don't know. I can, <laughs> can go, you know, with Billie Eilish or something. I don't know.
0: So in your opinion, just on the topic of getting gigs, aside from the musical side of it, how important do you think like the image side of it is and all that like like say that someone is like 16 listening to this and they want to have a career kind of like yours where they're like a professional guitar player would you suggest that they like go to the gym and like take that side of their life super seriously just as seriously as the music like how much do you think that plays a role
2: i would Rather err on the side of uh, err err on doing too much. I don't know what you know. I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, doing too much than too little.
2: Yeah, because because here's the thing: it's not that every band is going to be like that, but a lot will. And even if it's not a lot, is one. There could be one. I I don't remember if I talked this uh, about this to you before, but I lost a very big metal gig for having tattoos. Uh, The leader of this band. They didn't want to hire me because I had tattoos.
0: I don't remember having this conversation.
2: Even though they, uh, the bass player of that band, I guess, said that publicly too, because I was asked about it in Brazil on a on a show. But the point is, in that particular gig, which is a heavy metal band, a, a, probably one, of the, definitely one of the biggest bands in the world. The, the the reason I was given for not getting that gig was because the, the the leader didn't want anyone with tattoos. And the person who did get the gig does not have tattoos. So, you know, that's an example. Just one example that happened to me. So in this case, it was actually bad for me to have tattoos. It was, you know.
0: That is such a weird example. I've never heard of that happening.
2: So this happened, but it's also happened where... I didn't think I was the best fit, but I definitely looked the best and I got the gig. Actually, that happens often, you know, to be honest. And the way that you know that is because they will let you know. It's, I don't know why people like have this, this, impl- this inclination to let me know that the way I look is part of why I was chosen for the gig. It always happens.
0: So you're not making this up like you know it for a fact because people have told you.
2: Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. I was on the cover of the ESP Guitars catalog before they saw me play. Like, I, of course, my, my artist relations had seen me play, but not all the people responsible for, for me and the any app in the catalog. It was because it was a great photo. I believe that in some situations, the looks are 80% of it. In others, it doesn't matter. You know, but if you can cover all your bases, why not? So that's how I see it. But, you know, there's cases like that, that it could backfire. Now, I don't have tattoos to get gigs. I have tattoos because I like tattoos. But I can think of a band or two that would hire a guy with tattoos over a guy with not tattoos. You know, like the other way around of what happened for me like some warp Tour band. I'm sure that those bands will take that in consideration. You know, you want to go play, for, well, I don't want to mention names, but I don't know. You want to go mention to, we're going to go play for this big warp Tour band. Well, this guy is good. This guy is good and he's tattooed. So I'm going to hire him.
0: I'm sure that that happens. Oh, definitely. I'm positive. So yes, I mean, for
2: me, the look is just as important as, as, as guitar. I, I, I spend just as much time, you know, thinking about it. I spend, oh, what am I going to wear? How is my hair going to look? You know, all that kind of stuff <laughs> that some people bay here and be like, oh, you know, and judge and say something or whatever. Okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll be doing the tour and you'll be coming to the show, so. <laughs> I definitely focus on my
1: fucking hair a lot, especially when I'm on the road. Mainly because, like, if you're going to be meeting people, you know, you don't want to be greasy in front of them. Do you?
2: <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, and I mean, in your case, you're the band leader, so you do the hiring.
1: Uh, are you? It's your band, right? No, no, no. It's actually. I mean, everyone seems to think this, but it's actually a democracy.
2: Okay, well, I don't believe in those when it comes to. Bands. I don't
0: believe it either.
2: <laughs> but like you know, if you were auditioning someone, you probably. I mean, you you may not care, you know, what they look like, but if you did. A person that didn't have tattoos would be like, "Oh shit, I didn't get the monuments gig," you know. So, I mean, it's all about the person that's hiring,
1: I guess, to a degree, yeah. But like, I guess our style of music it was a little bit different because it's so undeniably complex. For yeah, you can't really pick and choose what they look like. <laughs> yeah, like, like actually, all the, the entire monuments band is quite uh, multicultural. So our drummer is jewish our bass player has dreadlocks but is from england um my parents are both black and irish and then our other guitar player is black and then our singer is czech american
2: and honestly i know that you didn't think about that but that makes it super cool looking too you know exactly like that makes in it, in it a cool way. looking <laughs> band but, oh yeah because that's the thing too it's not necessarily about being pretty or good looking it's looking the part this is what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, like Radiohead, for instance, is a great example of a band that's not good looking but looks the part. <laughs>
2: you know, it is. It is the way the way it works. You
1: know, if you think about it, like what is selling the band's music is like you know the music, obviously, but then the other half of it is how you look on stage and how you look in photos and how. And every band needs a
2: video now. You know.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it's yeah, it makes sense that they're gonna. Make you have the gig or not,
2: depending on if you fit the profile. This is a heritage from the from the eighties from MTV when when it was all about that. You know, like they would just sign the bands only about their look. That never went away. You know, it's just that never really went away. It's just that now they also care about how you play. But you know, but but on that token, if I wanted to join Metallica. Could I show up to an audition with hairspray and 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 lipstick? You know, they would be like, "Fuck you!" You know, <laughs> it's, it's the look. It's the same thing.
0: Yeah, but there there's a specific way that you would still need to look for that band. If you showed up with like a button-up white shirt and short hair and glasses or something, they probably you probably won't get the Metallica gig either. There's like there's like a range of what would be acceptable in that gig. I guess the reason I brought this up is because I think it's one of those topics that a lot of musicians are afraid to talk about or, you know, because they want to believe that it's all about music. And also a lot of people are just insecure about the way they look. And they use music, they use like their instrument to hide behind. And so it's music is like a shield from their insecurities. And so to think that to make this thing work, that is basically your protection from the world actually requires you to kind of, overcome those insecurities is very tough for a lot of musicians to accept. But I do think it's important for people to just understand that there's different parameters, obviously, depending on your genre and your role and what you're trying to do. You know, if you're playing in Opeth, you don't need to wear corpse paint. uh, (laughs) You probably need to look like you're in Led Zeppelin or something there's parameters for every situation and they're pretty much just as important as the music yeah unfortunately or fortunately for good or bad
2: yeah and specifically you know specifically like certain things, you know, like like you see when when you took the example of the other guy that couldn't show up to me, to the Metallica gig, you said, with short hair, you know that's such a big thing I, I, anyway, you know, it's hard to get away from it, you know it's long hair or bald. if you have short hair, you know there's people that are gonna look weird at you. <laughs> now Hatfield has short hair <laughs> well, yeah, he has it now. But not not the head field that people think about. Yeah, you know it, it, it's a weird industry, man. It really is. But you know, I for the longest time, and especially because I was so big, you know, as a teenager, I was big, and I and then I got big again. I hated that for the longest time, but it didn't take me anywhere. So that's when I was like, you know, I'll play the game, and then it started
0: working. <laughs> what are you doing now, workout wise? Uh, actually, I'm working out
2: at home. And, and because I'm not going to the gym, but even Smart. though it's open, even though it's
0: open. Smart, I'm, stay alive.
2: I'm basically sticking to the basics. I'm doing a two day split where I have front deltoids with chest and triceps and then back deltoids with back and biceps. And the, the exercises themselves are just very simple. You know, for chest, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do bench press and I'll do flies. Uh, what do you what do you call for the triceps?
0: The the tricep press.
2: Yeah, tricep press or whatever, and I have I also have like single single uh, dumbbells that I do there I do the same um, the curls for the arms. There's nothing super complex, but I'm biking. I'm me and my wife are biking every day, and we're giving ourselves this goal of improving at least a little bit every day. So so we we went to this part of town where. We actually can go around this place so we can count the laps that we do, you know, so we go and, 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 you know, every day we add half a lap more. So like my cardio has been amazing, something that I've never done before. But I'm staying in shape, man. I didn't think it would happen, but I'm actually staying in shape. And, uh, and I'm still doing 16, eight, uh, fasting, you know, the intermittent. Oh, fasting. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's good. I almost don't want to go back to the gym because I feel like I can concentrate more at, here at home. With my, my weights. I happened to move to a home that had, that had a bar and weights, you know, and then <laughs> I, I improvised a bench and I work out there now.
0: I built a gym during quarantine. Now, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go back. Yeah. No reason to. It's so much better like this. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking too. The one
2: thing is the gym gets me out of the house. You know, if I'm not on tour, that's, that's where I go during the day. But, but, uh, but I was, I was thinking that too. I'm like, I'm doing it better at home, man.
0: <laughs> so what role uh, does exercise play in your uh, touring? Have you noticed that being in shape has made it easier to just handle everything like from the shows to just staying alive?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I well, I don't. The fact that I don't drink makes it a little bit easier on me. But but no, I, I I've definitely been, you know, say like I've done a tour after working out. You know, and then another one where I didn't work out and it was a lot harder. So as far as like endurance uh, for the stage, be, because, you know, like the first couple of shows of a tour when you're still had banging and you still get gig neck. you know, like, <laughs> uh, like a good, uh, a good way to that. I, I see at least that I see the difference between being in shape and not in shape is how long it takes until my neck hurts. On the first songs, you know, like if I'm running out of breath by the first chorus or whatever, okay, I'm out of shape, you know. But I, <laughs> if I'm in shape, I'll get through the first song no problem, you know. And so I, things like that, I notice.
1: I'm out of breath before I walk up to stage. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, man, it, it is a workout in itself, man. You know, any 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 gig is a workout in itself too. So when you're when you're on the road to say you don't work out, is is never exactly true.
0: I always felt like, especially on non-bus tours, so van tours were always the best exercise if there was no crew because lifting heavy things twice, lots of heavy things, and then being on stage if you're if you're not a pussy about it is like intense cardio. So, and then you can go long amounts of time without eating. Uh, so mm. you're fasting a lot. So <laughs> actually I feel like van tours... If you if you don't fuck around, we'll get you in shape.
2: Yeah, it's true.
0: I've noticed something about the industry that changed is I feel like one thing I started noticing over like the past 10, 15 years is that um, people are a lot more serious about this. Like they'll take like gyms with them on the road. They'll take trainers on the road, like masseuses. Like they'll, it's like a much more important thing as opposed to when i first got in or first heard about it it seemed like people didn't give a fuck but now kind of like the way that extreme alcoholism isn't tolerated the way it used to be even though it's still there it's not nearly as tolerated i think that uh people keeping themselves healthy is way more of a thing than it used to be just cuz there's less money to go around and when there's less money to go around, people need to feel like they can uh, rely on the people that they're working with more.
2: Yeah, that's, that's true, man. The times that, uh, you know, being drunk and on drugs was cool for rock and roll are definitely gone. People don't think that's cool and people and, and, and in society at large, even less. I know that like for the first time younger, people drink less than the generation before them. You know, it's, it's definitely been a thing. When I was really, really young, I remember, you know, because in Brazil, Schwarzenegger was really popular.
0: Not just in Brazil. Oh,
2: yeah. Here's another. Uh, this is a, a tangent. But another example of the difference in languages is no matter how hard I try, I cannot explain to Brazilians that Arnold has a funny accent. <laughs> they really? cannot conceptualize it. It's not part of it. So, and it wasn't for me either. Like when I moved to America and I started seeing people talk like, I'm like, what's so funny? What's so funny? Finally, I saw Commando in English because, you know, in Brazil you see it dubbed in Portuguese, you know. I finally saw Commando in English. I'm like, how's his name John when he's sounding like that? You know? <laughs> so, so. But, but no matter how hard they try in Brazil to tell people that people make fun of his accent here, it, 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 they can't conceptualize. It. They can, you know, it, 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 he's just a super badass. So... Well, that's he hilarious. is a super—he is a super badass, though. Uh, are we talking about who I think we're talking about? <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah,
1: there you go. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Great film, by the way, Commando. Didn't
2: age well, but I still love it. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that. that would, well, anyway, so yeah, because of movies like that and stuff, you know, in Brazil, people started like talking about working out. But there was this thing that if you did that, you were gay. In the eighties, <laughs> when being gay was a problem. If you have an earring, you're gay. If you were a cow, then you get super big. You're gay. It was a thing in Brazil, and they and they they used to say you're gay in a very derogatory way. Not you're gay as in you're homosexual. No, you're gay. Like you know, and that it's was interesting. A very, how that, how
0: shit has changed.
2: Yeah, but it's changed out there too. You know that was a thing back in the day, but right now, anyone, any you go to Brazil, people are walking around in shape. So now it's cool. But again, culture, you know. It's, it's the culture changed. So now it's cool to do that, you know, and, it, and I, dude, I think it's badass. I would much rather tour with a bunch of health freaks than with a bunch of drunks.
0: Do you think that the fact that you have a healthy lifestyle also helps you get gigs? Like I, I can tell you this, that as a person who does hiring, like if I'm just thinking, imagine if I was in a band that was hiring people. That I would take that into consideration for sure.
2: Well, in my case, though, because I was a super extreme alcoholic, it's definitely different, you know, because he went from we cannot have this guy because he's such a piece of shit to, well, this guy doesn't drink. So that's a better option than that other guy that drinks. I don't I can't think if I was told point blank, but I was told stuff like, well, yeah, there's a lot of good things about you and you don't drink. You know, that I've heard before.
0: Your alcoholism days, was that, were you already into your career? Absolutely. Is anybody from All The Remains listening to this?
2: Maybe. <laughs> I have epic drinking stories from tours. I'm get, getting banned and kicked out of tours. Like, I'm surprised we never got into that.
0: We talked about you quitting alcohol the first time, but I'm not sure that we talked about this stuff.
2: Everyone that knows me from that time thinks I'm the worst drunk they ever met. You know, like <laughs> like it was, I mentioned All The Remains because that was like a bad, I mean, I got kicked out of their buzz and banned from it on the first night of the tour.
0: Holy shit. Were you playing with them or opening for them? What was going on?
2: I was in a band named Salvador Supporting. We were the first out of four bands. They invite us to their bus. I get drunk and crack op- open their Doritos and start fucking rolling on the floor. <laughs> so I get banned from their bus first night of the tour. Couple of nights after, they let me back in. I go there. This time on camera, their tour manager tells me, hey, man, slow down the drinking a little bit. Shut the fuck up. On camera. Like Jeremy Safer has probably that <laughs> on video. You know, he definitely has me and he definitely has me and their drummer Jason wrestling drunk because they did a DVD on that tour. I mean, that tour was one of the worst, but not as bad as the Firewind tour that I told you on the last episode. That's the one that made me stop drinking. (laughs) My first ever tour was June of 2006, and I didn't stop drinking until January of 2012. So for the first six years and I burned bridges, man, that they are unfixable you know in the industry like big people in the industry that i know and that don't like me because of how i was back in the day and they just didn't want to bother anymore you know what i mean like i've burned some bridges that that were unfixable to this day and uh, it was it was just a horrible time period in my life it didn't help that the band i was in at the time celador it was that metal blade thing i told you last time everybody had the same issue in the band
0: so it was like a tornado
2: <laughs> yeah we we're like 20 year old kids spending their tour support on vodka you know it was really it was really bad man but I mean our first tour as headliners was a disaster then we did a Trivium tour that tour was the Crusader tour and that tour was yeah drink I don't re- I don't I don't think I remember any of the shows I remember flashes from backstage. I remember some of the drives, but the actual concerts and, you know, I don't remember any of that, I don't think. You know, same thing, getting banned from their bus, getting yelled at by their tour manager. Fuck, we went to Japan, dude. Japan, we played this festival, Loud Park. There was a bar inside of the VIP area. We got kicked out of that, like from the <laughs> VIP or the VIP. <laughs> Like only like, you know, I don't know, 20 people in the whole building could go into that and we got kicked out of it and uh, it was really bad. I was, I was the worst and I was like the kind of drunk that will talk shit to people too. I wasn't a quiet drunk, you know, and I was very arrogant. I thought I was the best guitar player in the world. So I would get drunk and tell people that. And tell people how much they sucked. Sounds like fun. Espe- especially headliners. I love doing that to headliners. Going and like, <laughs> be like, you know, you know, you really fucking suck at guitar. I've said that to a few people I shouldn't have said. Some who aren't even with us anymore.
0: I guess the reason I'm bringing this up is because me and you talked about it on the URM podcast a long time ago. And so I think a lot of people who are hearing this have not heard that. But I think it's a, it's a great story. And uh the fact that you... Turned it around is huge because man, I know so many people who went in that direction and then either died or never repaired their careers. Like they basically very promising careers were just ended by it. And when I see young musicians thinking it's super cool to be that way, I kind of just want them to understand that. They think they're having fun, but that shit's going to catch up and uh, possibly ruin your life or end this really awesome gift of a career that you've got. I think, though, that if you do go down that road and then you end up turning it around and then manage to have an even better career, that's super rare. So I kind of wanted to talk about that some.
2: Yeah, man, it's hard, but but for me, you know, as I told you last time, I, it was the moment I decided to to quit drinking. Yeah, I had I had my personal reasons, but but it was mainly because I wanted gigs, I wanted to have a career. Chances are, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be able to stop. You know, I just because because I I, I just liked it so much. You know, yeah, it was ruining my relationships, but I didn't care. I only care about my career, and at that point in my life. I really had no career, you know, like I I had done those tours. I just told you guys, all all the remains, Trivium. I had done a few things, but I had already burned enough bridges and pissed enough people off that nobody was calling me. So I ended up doing that Firewind tour, I told you, as a feeling guitar player. And mainly because the band was Swedish and needed someone in America. It wasn't because I was super good or anything. I did that tour and I told myself, okay... This tour is very important because, because also as a guitar player, you know, Gus at the time was in Ozzy. So he was Ozzy Osbourne guitar player and I was playing in an opening band, which he was in. So, you know, and, and the guitar player I was filling in was the guy from Amaranth. It was it was kind of a cool position. I'm, you know, I'm playing Gus G on Gus G's solo tour. So I was kind of like, all right, so... I'm going to be cool on this one. You know, I'm not going to drink so much. And I drank every fucking day of the tour. Gus like threatened to kick me out of the bus, I think, on the third show. And then on the fourth show, I went and ripped some gumball machine out of the floor. It was just out of control. And no matter what kind of threat, no matter what people tried, I couldn't stop. And I became the joke of the tour, too. Like, there's a video on YouTube of that whole tour, like, people riding on my face, people putting shaving cream on me while I'm drinking. (laughs) Dude, I mean, you know, I became the butt end of every joke on that tour. And then at the end of it, we played a Thursday at the Whiskey which at the time I lived in LA, so it was my hometown show. The tour is ending there, badass. We played Thursday and I finished the show and I went up to the rainbow. I started drinking and I woke up the Wednesday after. So after being on tour, I went on a week drinking binge. That included getting kicked out of the rainbow. (laughs) Who gets kicked out of the rainbow? I did this one time. (laughs) And not only me, me and Scotty, which was someone, which was Lemmy's best friend that worked there for the longest time. We both got kicked out of there. Then we went to another bar, got kicked out. Then we went back to the hotel that the band was staying in. And then I got kicked out of that. My wife had to come pick me up, take me home. And then I went on a week long drinking binge. I lived next to a liquor store. So it was, you know, wake up, drunk. Drink more, pass out, wake up, oh, the bottle's empty, walk to the liquor store. I guess on Wednesday I woke up when the liquor store wasn't open and I just, you know, I sobered up and I'm like, fuck. you know, And I, and I know Thursday through Wednesday specifically because, because to this day I talk about my week-long drinking binge at the end of the tour. So that was, again, by myself, not on tour. I was like, okay, so I just ruined that opportunity. That was the last one. So now I ain't going to get any other gigs. Nobody's ever going to call me. You know, I pissed everybody off. I look like shit. And now I know I was playing like shit too, even though I thought it was awesome. And, you know, so, so that was like, okay, man, there's no recovering from this. I'm 29 now, you know, like there's no way I'm going to recover from this. I have to, I have to you know, lose, lose weight, get back in shape and at least start getting that going for me. Cause if I'm 30 and I still look like this and I still act like this, why would anybody hire me? Just get that
0: 21 year old
2: kid, you know?
0: Yeah. That is what would happen too.
2: With all of that in my head, I was like, I need to, I need to be, to stay competitive in the market. In in, you know, and I mentioned this before, you know, the, just one year after I stopped drinking, I was on the cover of the ESP catalog only because of the way I looked only because of that. And it was just one year after, you know, I stopped drinking in January 2012 and the catalog came out on January, 2013 at NAMM. So I was like, that was to me, sort of like a, a cosmic sign, so to speak, like, you know, you went from not having gigs to like being the center of promotion for this guitar company just because you stopped drinking. You're probably doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good indicator, I'd say.
2: Yeah. That was the thinking. I you know that's that's how my, my mind worked at the time anyway.
0: When uh when you made that shift, was it like like an instantaneous thing? Like you just kinda like snapped out of it and were like, Oh shit, I'm fucking up, need to fix this now and No turning back, kind of thing.
2: Well, after the the week drinking binge, I told you i I might have gone like four or five days without drinking, and I thought that that it was that it was it. I'm like, okay, I'm able to, I'm able to, I'm able to do this. And after five days, I went back to it and I started drinking again. But I had it in my head that I had to stop. I I just didn't know how. So that year, I went to Brazil to like spend New Year's Eve with my parents or whatever. I got so drunk, my mom asked me one day to stop drinking and I started yelling at her. And I was like, fuck, this is where I draw the line. You know, like I can't yell at my mother. Like I can, I can break tour buses. I can throw shit. (laughs) I can, you know, but but fuck, man, I'm yelling at my mom. You know, like that's the one person that's never been a bitch to me, you know. So so then I was like, okay. Now I really have to stop. Like I said, I was in Brazil for Christmas and New Year's Eve, so I made a New Year's Eve promise. You know, like people say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. So I made two promises that New Year's Eve. One was that I was going to stop drinking, and another one is that I was going to get in shape. They were connected, but I knew, you know, I needed to do them both. So I got fucking wasted on New Year's Eve, man. That was fun. I got, <laughs> because I knew it was the last time I was like, no matter what, I'm not drinking anymore because I'm not going to yell at my mom, you know, like, so I got wasted and I woke up the next, I was a morning drinker. That is the one thing I do miss, the taste of drinking in the morning. As horrible as that sounds, I do miss that. <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't Bloody touched Mary's it.
0: in the morning good.
2: I haven't, I haven't touched alcohol in eight years, you know, but, but I woke up the next. Day, you know, from on January 1st already 2012. And I was in my dad's apartment with a half a bottle of vodka right next to me at the you know, and I'm like, fuck. And I woke up with a hangover, you know, it was automatic to grab the bottle and drink. So as I did it, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to stop. Fuck. I sped it back out into the bottle. And dude, I'm like, no, I'm gonna stop. I put the bottle there. Uh, no, actually I dumped it. I dumped the bottle in the bathroom and then I got ready and went to the gym, but I didn't really know what I was going to do, you know, like workout wise. I had worked out before, but I, but I hadn't in many years. So I just went on the treadmill and I'm like, because it's the thing I hated the most, you know, and I, and I did like 30 minutes of treadmill and I almost died. I remember <laughs> I wanted to throw up. <laughs> like and I hangover. couldn't run. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Yeah, I, but I, it got rid of it. It got rid of it. And, <laughs> yeah. and I felt so good, so good. I'm like, okay, I think I can do that. But then I started freaking out a little bit. I'm like, I don't know if I can go forever without drinking. I'm only going to go two weeks. Two weeks is it a good start. After two weeks, I'm like, fuck, I did two weeks. How about another two weeks? You know, then I did it a month. But And the other thing, too, is I stopped going out i did not leave my house for anything for this was january around like march or april david david vincent came to la for some convention and he wanted to take me out he's like no you gotta go out we gotta go out you gotta go out you're a hermit i ended up going out with him he's like you're being fucking weird you know i'm like i don't know what to say to do man i'm you know like i don't i'm not drinking so he buys a diet coke and hands it to me and the second I grabbed it, dude, I'm like, that's it, this is it, because I used to drink vodka and diet coke. So I'm like, this is it, that's my vodka diet. And from and from this day, from that day, I learned to like be social. So anytime you see me out, you see that I'm drinking diet coke because it's you know it's the vodka diet without the vodka. <laughs> and but but yeah, dude, it was a good it was a good four months of not leaving my house for anything. You know, and I didn't have any gigs at the time. I didn't have any fucking money either. You know, I was kind of, kind of, sort of depending on my wife and my mom. But I was like, you know, at one point or another, I know that I'll be in good enough condition that people will start calling me. That summer I played Vakin for the first time, you know, the summer of 2012. I had all these little signs, you know, that was like, went from nothing to this, it's got to be the right thing to, it got to be doing the right thing, you know.
0: How long did it take basically before your phone started ringing again?
2: The thing is, I was lucky enough that Circle to Circle, this band, I I play, I still play with sometimes. They're, they're not a big band, but they are the singer for Sabotage in the Trans-Siberian Orchestras, his own solo band. And in Europe, he's still respected as the singer for Sabotage. So the fact that I went out there and I played Wacken with him, I met basically, we were never treated as like a, as a, as a small band, even though we were, we're playing for like a hundred people, but all the context, all the people, I was meeting these people. So after that tour, basically I started getting the calls. This is the summer of 2012. That's when we did Vaken and we did a tour and we did some other festival in Sweden. That year, the guy, the guy who was the artist relations for ESP guitars at the time took me as his lead guitarist for his own band on a European tour that same year. And that was the first time that I went to a play with a band that I didn't really know anybody or anything. And it wasn't big. It was just a gig, you know. But I was like, you know what? I can do this. I can learn your fucking songs and play. It's like playing covers, you know.
0: That's exactly what it is.
2: So after that tour, I started meeting. Yeah, man. By, by 2013, I already had like, by summer of 2013 and on, is when I started getting like, just, just working, working, working. Then, then summer, then 2015, I got in the Trans-Siberian Orchestra and that's, you know, that's when the the phone wouldn't stop ringing.
0: Was it weird at Vaken socializing and networking kind of for the first time as like a sober sober human?
2: Yeah, dude, it was really weird because Vaken was one of my life goals up to that point, you know. I always pictured that when I played Wacken, I would get fucked up with everyone and all that. And I didn't do anything of that. I had, And I had a lot of fun. You know, it was fucking, it was really, really cool. In fact, maybe because it was the first, because I played this time at Wacken, but it was the second stage. Three years later, I headlined it on the biggest show in the history of the festival. But that wasn't as fun as the first time. When I had exactly that in my mind, you know, I'm like, oh man, you know, I can't drink. You know, I have to. I was I was sober for only six months at that time, but I had like I have a lot more memories. And you know, when I think of Vodka, I kind of think of that first show instead of the second one. That's the big one. You
0: know. Were you afraid of relapsing?
2: Yeah, I was. I was, but I had already gotten through Nam that year. You know, that <laughs> year because Nam, yeah, Nam NAM's was the, the for me, one. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I one. mean, if you guys ever have Nita on this podcast, ask about partying with me back, you know, before before <laughs> she was Nita, before I lost weight. Dude, no, Nam was fucking it was stupid. I'm sure
0: we'll have her at some point.
2: It was really, really bad. The drinking. Like it was almost pointless to be there. You know, it was like I'm just drinking and pissing people off. So <laughs> I I stopped drinking January 1st. Right, and then NAM is like January twentieth or whatever. Yeah, I'm like, oh fuck, fresh. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and that NAM, it wasn't the one with the catalog. I wasn't feeling like a rock star. I was still some dumbass, you know. But I had to go. But that's also the NAM that I met Ralph, and I told him that that I had just stopped drinking. That's exactly how we hit it off, became friends. Because he's like, oh, I'm stopping drinking too which, you know, that's what he said until the end. But, we, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I'll help you, man. You know, I just stopped, so I'll, I'll help you out. You know, that's how we became friends. So because I went through that without drinking, I was like, I can, I can get through a tour, you know? And I did, I did, man. I really, I really, I, I, by the time I went to Europe that, that summer, the even the urge to drink was gone. You know, the, the 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 beginning, I still had the urges to wanted to drink, but but by that summer, I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. There's many better things.
0: You know, the the whole thing that you just said, like about having basically four months besides Nam, basically having four months to really like drill this in. That is the same reason for why I've been telling people since February. Uh, just for people listening in the future, it's 2020, and we're still in the middle of craziness. But back in February when all this lockdown shit started, I made a point of like telling people now is the time to lock in new habits and fix whatever the fuck it is about yourself. You want to fix because you're probably never going to get another opportunity like this to just be home and not be able to go out. Whether you're trying to get clean or lose weight or whatever the fuck it is, going out and dealing with people is one of the hardest things to do And not having that option is is a gift if you're trying to improve yourself. So I've been trying to get people to just focus on themselves as much as possible. And uh, I know some people have been, which is good, but I definitely think that having those four months where you're locked in probably has made all the difference in the world.
2: I honestly do believe that. I do believe that because it was, and it was really hard too, you know, like when I tell my story of of sobriety, I always kind of skim over that. I say, yeah, I didn't leave for four months, but that was really fucking hard to do.
0: Well, that's why I'm saying that this quarantine thing is a gift because people don't have the choice. One of the hardest things about making changes like that is dealing with the social pressures, going out with people and as like petty as it sounds... That's like a big reason that people relapse on their goals is just they make exceptions for themselves when they're out in public because they don't want to feel uncomfortable in public. And people around them might think they're being supportive, but typically the people around you are the least supportive people intentionally or not. So (laughs) having the ability to not be around people is magical. And
2: another thing you notice, well, you probably noticed this because you also lost a lot of weight. It's like all those people that were like, oh man, yeah, go for it. Lose weight, lose weight. Once you do, they're like, cool. You know, like, like you're <laughs> all happy with your own shape. Yeah, man, check it out. I actually took your advice and I went and worked out. Cool. Congrats. A lot of people like to give advice, but, but, but then, you know, when you work, it's like, oh, cool.
0: Well, I mean, I think they're, if they're giving you that advice, it's probably because they don't want you to die. And then once you're healthy, it's like, all right, cool. Uh, We can now resume a normal uh, relationship. But I think that unless you've been on the inside of having to make a transformation like that, you can't really relate to how difficult it is. And I think so, like if someone who's always been sober or always been in shape is like, dude, you should uh, get that shit together because I don't want you to die. And then you do it. They'll think it's cool, but they're, they're not going to be able to relate to it because they, don't know how they it never, was. they never had to change something like that about themselves. I think only only people who have uh, been broken and then fixed themselves in some way are going to be like are going to understand what a monumental task it is to to fix something like that.
2: And to that credit, uh, honestly, I got a lot of more, oh my God, you did it, reactions to quitting drinking than than losing weight, which is really weird.
0: <laughs> which one was easier or harder?
2: They happened at the same time, so I don't know exactly. You know what I mean? It was it was at the same time. I stopped drinking and started working out literally the same day. So I, I guess they were equally hard In hindsight, it was hard. But now when I think about it, I'm like, dude, what if I didn't do it? It's almost like there was no option but that.
0: We wouldn't be talking right now if I didn't do that. Yeah, exactly. Dude, you might not even be alive if you didn't do that. Yeah,
1: man. (laughs) The vodka. Nah, I can't do it. No vodka. No, no, no. It's blackout juice.
2: (laughs) That was one of my favorite things about it. Blackout juice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Dude, now it was, it was, I, I have to say there was some funny times and, you know, I, I love doing it, but it was, the problem is when you can't, like everything Control else, it. man, every drug is well, like When you that. can't the problem stop. Is, yeah. I don't know. That's why THC is the future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't not drink, but I basically don't drink now. I never had a problem with alcohol, so I never had to stop, but it's just not a part of my lifestyle now. However... When I think back to touring, like when my band did OzFest and it was a Jaeger tour, I think (laughs) about the amounts of alcohol that were consumed on a regular basis, and it's shocking. Like So every morning when we would arrive, I'd go to the Jaeger tent, and they'd give me like three bottles. And one bottle was for me on stage— and I would chug the whole fucking thing and still play a a Doth set, which is crazy.
1: (laughs) And the other two bottles were for me to
0: share with the band through the day. So every day I was at least consuming one and a half bottles of Jager myself on top of going to other people's buses and whatever shots you're doing with them, the beers that are there, like just, it's a it's a staggering amount of alcohol and that's not even that much by some people's standards. And I didn't like, I didn't realize how bad the lifestyle was till I got back from some of those tours and had to like reintegrate into society. Basically (laughs) I saw like how basically how like over the top, the rock and roll lifestyle is and, uh, how much bad behavior that will kill you is normalized is crazy. Were you able to actually perform the songs like at the same level
2: drunk? No, I would (laughs) say no.
0: (laughs) I, I would say no. The best I ever played on stage was when I wasn't drinking on tours and drinking like 10 waters a day and doing P90X. On the final Doth tour, I was, like, doing P90X every day, and, like, that's obviously the best I played. Like, at most, I'd have, like, one beer. I guarantee you that back in the OzFest days, I sounded like shit and uh, and was rescued by the fact that the other guitar player is godly. And there was no YouTube. <laughs> and there was no YouTube. I mean, granted, like, we worked hard. And uh, we put a lot of time into being good. And so the amount of work that we put in, like, got us by, where I think a lot of bands don't, especially now, bands don't even practice that much anymore. But, like, I think that we, we put in a lot more work as players and, like, being tight with each other than most of the bands we knew. And so I think that even with alcohol, like, We were still able to, like, uh, keep it together, whereas I think some of the bands that didn't work as hard may have fallen apart. But, yeah, it was nowhere near the level it could have been at, obviously. We would chug a fucking bottle of Jaeger in five minutes.
2: (laughs) I used to think I played just fine. I thought, you know, and then sometimes I see videos, you know, from that time. I'm like, okay. brutal, yeah. But not, not even near what I thought he was,
0: yeah, your perception of things is really, really warped. The other thing is alcohol affects the way you hear, for sure, like it destroys your your high end, so you're physically unable to hear the articulation. You don't even know what you're hearing when you're drunk
2: oh i didn't I didn't know that. it actually fucks up your high end. I didn't yes. know that.
1: That's Absolutely. Off. Now that you've started mixing, what you should do is you should have a beer before, um, after you start <laughs> yeah, mixing.
0: C- celebrate your sobriety with some alcohol, dude.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, it does. Yeah. Basically. It does. Yeah. The moment if you have one beer uh, while you're in the middle of a mix session, your top end will just go. It'll go like
2: that. 10 minutes. It's gone. That's interesting, man. I did it. I didn't yeah. know that.
0: So, so if you combine the fact that you can't really hear with the fact that you're feeling good, of course, you might think you're playing well. You can't even tell what's going on.
2: <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> now, there's some exceptions, like somehow Dimebag used to pull that shit off.
1: I think he was sober
0: after a bottle of Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Same as Lemmy. Maybe they were so far into their alcoholism that it normaled them out or something.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, when you see, um, you know, people that smoke weed, like they get to a certain point, they've been smoking it so long that they can be high all day and they are the most productive person on earth versus, you know, the people that smoke it maybe a little bit in the evenings and then they're just, they've got the munchies. I think it's a similar mindset. Do you
0: know what I mean? Yeah. I do know some functional potheads for sure. I think that they're the exception. (laughs) Like I've met some people who will smoke like 16 hours a day and just get everything done and be really good at everything that they're doing. But what I've noticed is that for them, it's kind of like a medication. Their brain is... Wired to be stressed out all the time and they're very OCD in general. And so it like evens them out where I think those people probably should have been seeing a psychiatrist and <laughs> probably on a medication. <laughs> they're choosing to self-medicate and the weed is kind of handling the problem. But most people I know that smoke weed all the time don't have their shit together. Sorry, people.
2: <laughs> to that credit, I do know a lot of very, very... uh productive potheads just like you just said yeah
0: it's just all mindset that's why i think well motor skills are not mindset
2: sure i, I don't know sometimes i say that it's not that potheads are lazy is that lazy people become potheads
0: i think that's true kind of like being a celebrity doesn't make you a narcissist but a lot of narcissists are drawn to becoming celebrities
2: the same can be said for musicians
0: I would say the same thing for musicians. Have you ever been working with somebody who loves to smoke weed? And I'm saying this as a weed smoker, someone who loves to smoke weed and you're working with them and everything's cool. And then the moment they smoke, it's like, work's over. Like they can't really play well anymore. They can't keep a thought together. It's just like the nights are wasted.
2: I've seen that. I've uh, You know, I, I actually worked with produce- well. Sort of a producer like that.
0: We won't say who it is, but I know who you're talking about.
2: Yeah, like his producti- productivity just went to shit when he smoked. And I and I was always like, Why don't you why don't you wait till you're done if it does that to you? Because I can't I can smoke and not and not and not lose productivity. But like obviously you can't. So i've seen it happen like you, you see him starting to even hit the keys slower <laughs> it, it's weird it's weird i've seen it happen
0: i think that people should be aware of that if you're one of those people who can smoke and then perform at high levels then cool awesome Good. Yeah. you're lucky I have heard that it's a genetic thing, actually, that certain things, like for instance, you know how some people smoke and they get super stressed out while other people smoke and they feel great. Some people smoke and they're very productive. Some people smoke and
1: the anxiety takes over. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It has something to do with the strains to a degree, but I've heard that the bigger component is a genetic component. Some people are just wired to not cooperate with weed like they wish they could. Like I I wish I didn't get stressed out smoking weed.
2: Like I have a question regarding weed and to you guys as you know engineers and producers and teachers. Now, weed definitely definitely changes how you perceive sound. Yes. Right? Now, but but, but here's the thing. There are a few songs, right, that I heard when I was starting to tr- experiment with weed. So like I I heard differences, you know, at that time that was high, and now when I hear it sober, I can't unhear it. There's a specific like this German power metal band called uh, song, uh, band called Iron Savior. They have a song that one time I was the first time I heard that song. I had just gotten high for, for one of the first times, and the kick drums started to get so loud. I was like, ah, you know, like like is that really that loud? To this day, I hear that song and the kick drum. The kick drums still jump to me. You know even if i'm sober and even and what i've done is i listen to the album and the other songs don't do that just this one song i hear the kick louder and i hear it how i heard it this first time when i was high when i was younger that also happens. scenes from a memory is another good example there's a lot of things especially with the keyboards that i heard you know five six years later smoking And I'm like, oh, I never heard that before. And now I can't hear it. Now it's there, you know. Have you guys ever heard that?
0: I definitely believe that smoking enhances your ability to hear and feel music, for sure.
2: It's almost like he makes it 3D. Yes. Like, I I hear the bass here and the drums here. It's different.
0: It's like Catch-22. Like, the best music I've ever written has been high as fuck. On weed and Adderall, like the <laughs> the best combination ever. But
1: <laughs> oh my god!
0: Oh yeah, like the best doth tunes. Everything was just like blitzed and zoned. But the problem then becomes trying to like actually record that stuff and not make stupid mistakes. Like there there's a there's a trade off. But I feel like I've never been able to understand music as deep as I have when uh, super high, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, but, but but I mean, the fact that so many people say that, there's got to be something to it. You know, there's got to be something to it, to the way your perception works. Because it's the same way, you know, I hear a song I know, and then I'm high, and I'm like, oh, I hear all these details, and now the song is better, even when I'm not high.
0: I don't know exactly what it is, but it feels almost like, uh, <laughs> you know how salt like it actually makes food better because it uh, enhances your ability to taste food. So like it actually does create a physical reaction in us that enhances our, our taste buds. Basically. I feel like certain substances, like weed do a similar thing to our ability to ingest music. I think it's a very, very similar thing. It just somehow it triggers something in our brain that, Makes it possible to feel it in a way that you just wouldn't be able to feel normally, and I feel like a hippie saying it, but I've experienced it too many times to think it's not true.
1: And For it to be coincidence, basically,
0: it's dude, it's not coincidence. So, like, like Bill just said, so many musicians. T-
1: that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it's too many times for it to be co- coincidence.
0: Have you noticed it too?
1: Oh yeah, of course. The whole first monuments record, I was high as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I think I think that, you know, I've written some of my best music when I've been
0: stoned. What do you think it is? Like, do you just, like, get, like, zoned into it better?
1: I think the concentration level. I think there's something about it. Like, um, I definitely have a short attention span, when it comes to everyday life, (laughs) like a lot of people. But the moment that I was smoking weed, I found that I could sit there in one spot trying to play the same riff for 12 hours and it wouldn't bother me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's probably a part of it. Yeah, because you experiment a lot more. It was almost
1: like accepting my fate in this moment of I can't play this riff, but I'll sober up in a couple of hours. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I think that's kind of like, yeah, I think that just mainly, it's mainly the concentration level. I mean, if you're one of those productive weed smokers, then you can just get on with it. Yeah, it'll probably take you a little bit longer than it would normally because you're hearing all these extra little pieces that you don't hear. So then you overanalyze it a little bit. But if you get it just right, then I think that some of the best music's been created when people have been, high. I mean, Pink Floyd. Yes, it's beyond the plant, so to speak, but... Yeah,
0: Pink Floyd. I think that part of what's happening is that you're, uh, you know, when you're conscious, when you're conscious, when you're sober, <laughs> uh, you're very much more connected to your conscious mind, like thinking about things as they happen, analyzing them. I feel like uh, when you're high, uh, that part of your brain, it's not that it's gone necessarily, but it shuts the fuck up a little bit. Yeah, which allows the part of your brain that feels things or locks in to to musical patterns or whatever, it allows that side of of you to kind of flourish or I guess take the wheel. And I find that one of the things that gets in the way of performing music really well or writing it is conscious mind overanalyzing things way too much. And that's, I mean, that's, if you want to fuck up on stage... The best way to do it is to think about what you're doing uh, and you're asking to fuck up. And I feel like when you're writing music, if you're overthinking it, you're asking for it to not be as cool as if you just feel it, let it flow out.
1: I actually think that's uh, really true, actually, because I find that if I'm sat in front of my computer trying to write music while I've got a DAW open, then usually nothing comes out. But if I go to a different room or do it in a different position, like I'm not saying to like, you know, turn around on, a, on this chair or something like that, but I find if I sit on my sofa behind me and not sit directly in front of the computer, then it's a completely different mindset because I've not got Cubase open. So I think that maybe that is probably what it is when it comes to weed. It's just like, it's just a different mindset. And it's like, Taking away that over analyzing aspect that you would have. It's almost like the, the fuck level is gone, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: I think that the fuck level gets in the way a lot. Now, it's weird though, because you need to give a fuck when it comes to like technical practice, and there's a lot of things involved with your musicianship that you should give a lot of fucks about. But in the actual process of creating, sometimes that voice gets in the way. Yep.
2: Agreed. Have you guys heard uh, Joe Rogan talk about his opinions on like how rock and roll came to be because of
0: acid? No, but I bet he's right. <laughs> what is it?
2: Uh, I can't remember what interview it is. I'll I'll find it and I'll send it to you. But because he's talking about the evolution of music up to the 50s, you know, so like music from the 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, the 50s started becoming a little bit different. But like the 20s to like the 40s, the mid, you know, even the early 50s, it didn't. Changed that much the way music, popular music was written. Then acid came. Then you get then you get Hendrix, you get the Beatles, you get all that. So his point was that it was literally like that. If there was no acid, there wouldn't be any of this stuff. Because that's how different the music from the 50s to the 60s and 70s is. And he's like, that is due to acid. Like, he straight up said that.
1: I don't think he's wrong, actually. I think to a degree, I think that's probably part of it. Obviously, the technology change, which I spoke about earlier with the solid body electric guitar. The, Mm -hmm. you know, the, I guess what the Moog was probably from around that kind of time as well. And those, you know, synthesizers played a huge part in that particular sound, especially with, you know, even some of that prog stuff like Emerson Lake and Palmer and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. Like, you can do that without being on acid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. 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 And that was his point. And he's like, you know, you see that there was a huge leap between the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the and then it's not that different anymore. And, and it's true, you know, like metal is still metal. It's still like, it's modern metal, but it's still based on the metal of 30 years ago, you know? So it, it wasn't this thing that completely became something else.
0: Have you ever done acid?
2: I have not. No. And I really want to.
0: Have you, John? I have not. Have you? Okay. Yes. Long time ago. I will never do it again, (laughs) but I'm very glad that I did. My brain is not in a place where I can handle being out of control like that. (laughs) But I will say I'm very glad I did. And though I, I have seen people who have completely ruined their brains with it by doing it way too much. I only did it like three or four times. And uh, the mind expanding thing that people talk about isn't bullshit. It was a lot easier to like, for instance, see music in a way that like, you could see it. It's hard to explain, but like, you could take a musical idea and just understand it from start to finish in all its intricate detail in a way that you just couldn't in normal life. It just brain doesn't go there normally. And so I totally do believe that, you know, if you have a time period where technology is changing, society is changing, you have all these talented people and you throw in this mind expanding substance, I don't think that it would have had the same effect if we didn't have the technology because then they wouldn't have had the tools to create it with, right? So it's, it's kind of like a combination of all the things, all the factors going into it. But yeah, I, I definitely do think that uh, it probably has something to do with it. Don't do drugs, boys and girls, please.
1: So what, what I've learned from this so far is that taking substances might not necessarily be a bad thing, just keep them under control.
2: Don't piss anyone off.
0: (laughs) Well, it's kind of one of those things that people are going to do, whether you tell them to or not to. I think that it's just something that people are going to do. But I think that that said, they should be aware of the price tag that comes along with them. Like, you know, if you want to drink and party. Uh, there's there's a price that you pay for it. If you want to do things like drop acid, yeah, you might expand your mind, but you might also be crazy forever. Like some people I know,
2: or Sid Barrett can attest to that. You know,
0: <laughs> I, it's happened to people I know who took it, and it was cool at the beginning, and then they just did it over and over and over and over, and then they kind of never recovered. They uh, like they kind of just became these like weird flatlined, I don't want to say brain dead, but it's almost like it totally dried out their ability to be creative. So I know that people are listening to this and some people are impressionable. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Like none of this stuff comes without a a price that you pay for it basically.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah. But... I've also never been as creative as I was in those days. (laughs) So, Apples and oranges. I mean, right now when you write, are you sober? Yeah, completely. Do you find it easier or harder?
1: Much, much, much harder. Why? The attention span that I was talking about. I find that once something's kind of gone a little bit wrong, I don't want to do it anymore. Or if something's not sounding cool, like how it sounds cool, I don't want to do it anymore. Whereas I can't
2: relate to that so
1: much. <laughs> but if if I'm high, then I'll get over those obstacles. I'll just delete it and be like, oh, I'm just going to play that fucking riff again with this different note. But it didn't piss me off. But now it does. So therefore, I get a lot less writing done, which is kind of annoying.
0: So. If you don't mind, I kind of want to change topics because we've been talking about this for a while. Yeah, of course. I know that we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon. So there's a couple other things I want to bring up. And uh, I think people are probably sick of hearing us talk about acid. (laughs) But uh, Bill, right now, what is your practice routine?
2: Okay. So I'm going to tell you everything I do. Now, the time that I spend doing it may vary based on how much time I have or what I have to do, right? Uh, you're, yeah. you're talking about guitar practice, right? Yes. One thing that I noticed that works great for me and and a lot of people I told have been agreeing is I start the day doing you know from Steve Vai uh, the 30 hour guitar workout how he has the one two three four yes. permutations but he has all 24 ways of that right so it's it's not just one two three four it's one two four three one two you know one three two four there's 24 different ways that you can do that so I'll start a uh, first thing I play is I do a lot of that with my left hand alone, because when you play sloppy lead guitar particularly, it's normally because your left hand is slower than your fat, than your right hand, because the right hand, I mean, yeah, you have to develop control, but it's much easier to keep the speed going than it is with the fingers. So I work a lot more on my left hand. So... I'll spend, you know, some time, it could be five minutes if I don't have a lot of time, it could be 20 if I'm just fucking around, doing that, the one, two, three, four thing, only with my left hand. After I'm done with that, then I move on and I only work on my right hand. I put a click, you know, somewhere around 100, if I'm feeling super, you know, super badass, maybe at 120. And I do nothing but downstrokes on the low string, you know, the B or the E or whatever guitar I'm using, in sixteenth notes. At that, until until I start falling off. When I start falling off, that's my break. You know, all right, let's. And I, and I and I normally count like four or eight bars, and then I start again. I do that for the same amount of time. What do you mean by break? Because I put the click and I start. Playing And I can only stay in time for so long, you know, like okay. after when I start falling off, you can, if, if I can still catch up and be like, okay, I just fell off. That's one thing. But, but sometimes my hand is generally tired, you know, and I, 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 and I just have to stop. So I take a break, but it's a short break. It's a four, eight bars or whatever. And I start over and then I do that for, you know, five, 10 minutes or whatever then I put both hands together and I start playing because at this point I'm not trying to engage my brain yet this point is this time is literally physical it's about warming up my left hand warming up my my right hand. Now when I put it together I start engaging the brain. I take the circle of fifths and I start with the C major scale and I play it starting from the first fret up to an octave higher than that three notes per string all alternate picking because that's what I want to do I, I want to keep my hand going you know the, the the, the alternate movement going without having to think too much about what I'm playing. So I'll do C major scale, blah, 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 an octave. When I get to the F on the 13th fret, I turn that F into an F sharp and I go back in G. So I'm starting to engage my brain here because every time you go, you know, one step up on the circle of fifths, you add one sharp, right? So you go C, no sharps, G, now I have one sharp. So I'm playing the same thing. Only F, every F is now F sharp. Go back up on the neck. When I get up here, next key would be D. So same thing, you know, now every C becomes a C sharp and I go up, go back on A. So I've been doing this because that will get you ready for anything. Right, like technique-wise, up to that point, I might do I might do some other random exercise, you know, just whatever, whatever. It could be pentatonic shapes, it could be arpeggio, whatever. But the most important part of the practice comes after when I just play to a backing track, and I play to a backing track that's literally one note on the bass and drums, and that way I can improvise, thinking whatever I want. You know, I don't have so. uh, Oh, today I want to, you know, I want to get a little more familiar with. With the dominant diminished scale, you know, so I'm going to, then I, I start playing phrases over that. And that's like the music part of it. it. It is practice, but it's not physical practice. I'm not trying to get better at any techniques. I'm trying to come up with better things to play. If that makes sense. Complete mm-hmm. sense. My practice essentially, essentially, uh, will encompass all these things. Now there's also, there will also be a time where I practice on something, practice something that I don't know. So like recently I've really, uh, I've been, I've been learning a lot of Django stuff, just something I always told myself I wanted to do, but I never had any time, you know? So I'll sit and I'll practice some Django lick. And as you said that you you dissected, you know, the Monument song, I'll do the same. You know, that's part of my practice too. Because learning the lick, well, as I said at the beginning, learning the lick is one thing. You know, learning the music is different. Normally it will be something that I can't play that well. Django is an example. Or, you know, last week I was really, really, really into the Chad Atkins thing. You know, so so my my whole practice became that, you know, I did everything I said with the pick uh, at the beginning to warm up, you know, let the pick go. And now I'm just going to practice Chad Atkins shit. And because that's, you know, in four bars of Chad Atkins music, there's going to be, you know, 12 spots that I'm I'm really struggling because it's not something I play. Then what I do, what I told you guys, I, I isolate that one part and then I just keep trying that part in a loop using interval training. So like 25 minutes, then stop five or 30 minutes and stop 10, same thing. And what I practice really depends, really depends on what mood I'm in. About a month ago, I was writing a new song for my band that has a lot of Brazilian music influences. That's something I've never done before. And in order to put that in my music, I needed to learn it because yeah, I may be from Brazil and I may be used to the music, but I never actually studied it. So You know, about a month ago, all I did in my practice was play bossa nova tunes, you know, and I'm learning, I learned like six or seven bossa nova tunes that I never knew before. And, and I practiced them exactly the same way I would speed picking or whatever, just sitting with the metronome, playing like, oh, this chord to this chord, I have a hard time changing this a little bit. So I. Focus on those two chords, you know. I'm just gonna play those two chords the same way for like six hours. (laughs) Is it like six hours a day? It can be, it can be, but it can be, but it's not six hours every day. No, I I I always say anybody that says they play twelve hours a day every day is lying. Of course, it's it's impossible. It's impossible every day. But I have played twelve hour days, and I have even like played twelve hours one day and ten hours another day. But I was younger you know, when I did that.
0: There's a time in your life where that makes a lot more sense. And it's usually between 13 and 19 years old.
2: Yeah. But as far as the time goes, so today I don't have anything, right? So once, once we're done here, I'm probably going to practice, I don't know, three hours or something, four hours, like, right? because I don't have anything better to do. And I really am studying guitar now. One thing that, because I have a, I too have a very, 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 very short attention span. I would rather play four hours than one period of four hours. Does that make sense? Like four 25-minute bursts as opposed throughout the day as opposed to mm-hmm. trying to do one 16, 25-minute 16,
0: burst. So you like to take breaks, like play for 25 minutes, stop, come back?
2: That's what I said at the beginning when I told you guys I was kind of developing up a thing to study is because what I'm trying to to figure out is the optimal time, how much to practice versus how much to stop, because you definitely need the breaks. The breaks are definitely showing me that to be helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like going to the gym.
1: You wouldn't go to the gym seven days a week without having a day off. Your body needs time to recover. It's exactly the same thing. Like you wouldn't run a marathon every day for seven days, which...
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unless you're David Goggins
2: even even this bursts you know because like playing guitar focused on one thing for 30 minutes is fucking hard you know and and you, at least I I end up you know I don't know say I'm I'm practicing two chords like I was saying here you know if I do that for an hour after I'm bored you know but if I do 25 minutes I stop five then I come back then I can go a lot longer
0: makes sense. One thing that you have brought up that a lot of people don't bring up enough, like it's not talked about enough, is making sure that you're actually enjoying it and not bored. We all know the dudes who talk about, well, they lie about playing 12 hours a day. Typically what I've noticed, like I remember these dudes from Berkeley, they would do like the same thing every single day. It'd be like three hours of scales and then like an hour of arpeggios and like the same thing every single fucking day and those dudes were never that good interestingly enough and I think it's because they were in such a boring uh, routine I know you dudes who practiced half as much they kept themselves very interested and they were way way better I think that there's a lot to be said for not letting yourself get bored
2: absolutely absolutely and also See, because most of my life I I practice like what you just said, an hour of this, an hour of that, an hour of that other thing. And what that gave me was I became really good about doing those things, you know, but but without like, you know, an hour of arpeggios, an hour of, you know, alternate picking or whatever. But then when you're thrown into a situation to create something, what you do is you regurgitate that you play the same arpeggio that you've been practicing. You know, you play yep. the same the same licks. This is why like every guitar player will do this. You know, because you 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 sit at home doing that. It sounds good. You throw it into your song, you know. So I that's why for me it's more important to work on things that I'm not good at. And then more important than that even is applying it on a musical context. You know, it's it's playing against a backing track or trying to write a song with it. It's a an arpeggio, a lick, an exercise by itself is really nothing. You know, it's just that an exercise. You know, you're good at playing that. Okay, now let me hear your arpeggio. Exactly, that's
0: basically how I see it. You know, uh, one of the things that I always found to be like so annoying about listening to guitar players was when they—you could tell that the music they were playing. Like you could hear the exercises in their own music, like whether they're playing a solo or writing riffs. Like you could like spot, like I could spot which exercises out of like the Berklee Scales book they were doing. So and then I would call certain local bands, like okay, that's a Berklee Scales level two band, (laughs) because they or okay, they've got arpeggios four. Uh, And you could always spot that shit, and it's for the same reason that you just said. If that's all you work on, that's what you're going to regurgitate. So that warm-up that you just talked about, the one where you go up with one scale, come down with another, I think that's very, very interesting because it uh, sounds like it gets the dexterity there, and it takes care of all that technical, the whole technical side of it, but it doesn't let your mind off the hook which keeps you actively engaged with what you're doing. Like if you were just doing one scale up and down the neck in all positions, like a lot of people do, I think that you can turn off your brain and just go through the motions. And then when it's time to play a solo, that's, What's gonna come back out?
2: Yeah, that is that that thinking what you just said is exactly why I do that
0: like okay jazz
2: guitar players you know they get a lot of praise and and especially in 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 recent years you see a lot of metal guys claiming jazz influence and on all of that but uh, oh because the jazz musicians are the best and blah 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 and all that While that may be true, the main thing. That will, like, if you watch a jazz guitar, and I'm talking about a jazz guitar player, not some metal guy that likes Alan Holdsworth.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like a real jazz guitar player. Yeah,
2: if you see a jazz guitar player and then you see a, a metal guitar playing, the essential difference is that the metal guitar player is playing licks. And the jazz guitar player may be playing licks too, but the licks that he's playing are adapted to the chords. So in other words, yeah, he knows how to play this minor seven arpeggio in three different ways. But right here, he's actually thinking I'm playing E, G, B, D. He's not playing a shape. You know, it's not about how technical jazz players are. It's it's about how they play, how they phrase things. And that is what I think. And I'm using jazz players as an extreme example, because in metal, any player that knows how to phrase gets a lot of praise because most players don't know how to phrase and they don't know how to phrase because they practice arpeggios and scales. So when I do an exercise like that, you're engaging your mind, but you engage your mind just enough because it's one note that's different, you know? And to memorize, uh, you, you could. You could say, okay, well, in F, you know, if I'm playing C major, then my first position is going to be here on the F, so it's going to be the lydian position. So if I'm playing G major, the same position would be, say, the locker position. You could tell yourself that, but that's a pain in the ass. You actually have to think of the notes that you're playing. It's like, I just played on F. Now the next time on F comes up it needs to be an F sharp and the only way that you're gonna do that is if you know where the F sharp is you know otherwise you will fuck up the exercise because you need to stay in time so that's exactly the thinking behind it is like yeah play your licks disengage your mind or whatever but think a little bit of the notes that you're playing just the fact that you're switching from F to F sharp, every time that note comes, you have to think about it. And then when you're just getting used to it, now you have to deal with a D, uh, C sharp. Yeah. Now, where's where's the fucking C sharp? Oh, I, fine. All right, got it, got it. Oh, now we're going to A sharp. Now, where's that G sharp?
1: There's actually a fairly similar sort of exercise on the riff hard side but instead of thinking about it in note form it it cycles through taking rest notes out of a riff
0: uh i know the one you're talking about it's crazy
2: <laughs> like one two three bars one two bars four
1: yeah yeah exactly so imagine you've got eight beats to your bar but you're doing it in seven eight so the phrase is in seven eight over four four
2: and every single time you play the riff you take the next note owl. Oh, so you're doing da 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 but the drums are going straight. Taka, 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 yes, taka, so like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah. oh, that's good. good. <laughs> and then,
1: then you either accent um one of the notes and that can change. There's a randomize, there's a cycle through. So it's constantly making your brain hurt. And like once you've uh, once you've done the randomization and you get the muscle memory, that's when it's time to change it up. Because once you know it. You're not really expanding on your vocabulary, you know, yeah, exactly. which is That's uh, awesome. one we'll of the things that I out. think that everyone gets stuck in. I think that we all just play the same shapes all the time and the same licks and, you know, getting outside of that is actually
0: the hardest part. Where on the side is that?
1: It's in the down picking gym.
0: Okay. I remember when we filmed that.
1: Yeah. Do you remember when Nick wrote down all the numbers on the sheet and it fucked my life
2: for the day?
0: Yeah, that exercise is nuts. <laughs>
2: well, another thing, I forgot to mention that because I don't do that a whole lot, but but to the point that he's talking about of switching the the accents, I do something similar and I switch the figures. So I'll take a scale, any scale, but it has to be like a, a, a full scale. It doesn't have, it can't be like a lick. It has to be something that you use to play one note after another. And then do like the first note is a quarter note. Then the two, the second and third notes are eighth notes and then triplet.
1: Oh, yes.
2: I've been doing that a lot. That will fuck with your brain, too.
1: Yeah, basically, what uh, Henning, so I did a YouTube video with Henning, Paulie.
2: He's known as HP42 on YouTube. And he gave me that challenge. Is that the guy that did an album with Sebastian Bach like 10 years ago? Yes. Oh, that album is awesome, actually.
1: He'll be very happy that you knew that because I didn't. And then he showed it to me and I was like, ah, this is actually really, really sick. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, he's really good at writing music and he doesn't really show it on his YouTube videos. He just... uh he's Henning on his YouTube videos. (laughs) Yeah. He showed me that exercise and I just couldn't do it in that moment. It was, it's actually undeniably complex to do, you know, going from like, yeah, whole note to half note and doing it within a scale or in this particular instance, it was just a pentatonic and it just ruined me. I couldn't work it out in my head. My brain was just going all over the place.
0: (laughs) I used to do that one all the time, actually. I love that one.
2: Cause yeah, you, you have accents with the upstroke and then you, you're going to change the string on a triplet. So one note on this note and two notes on the next string, da, da, da. you know, it fucks you, fucks you up,
0: man. I feel like that exercise, once you get through a round of it, if you, like, actually get through a round of it, like, you walk out feeling stronger or something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, you accomplished something.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of those in Frank Gambale's Chuck Builder. Yeah. He has a lot of those in that video.
0: I think the big idea, the big takeaway, and this is kind of—I feel like this is true for life, is if you want to improve at anything— you need to constantly put yourself in a state of discomfort. Yes. <laughs> that's where growth happens.
2: It is. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something that some some bodybuilder said before? Probably. I'm sure. It sounds right. And it's also true that it has to be a level of discomfort, though, that you can handle, right? So you don't get frustrated.
0: Yeah. Well, that that's kind of key right there, too.
2: Yeah, that's uh, was the way to create flow. In, in guitar, like if you play too far above your speed, you're just going to get mad. But if you play a little bit, you're going to be, oh, I can actually get to that.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Or you might hurt yourself.
2: Yeah,
1: that too. No, but if it's only a little bit, then you know that if you just work hard on it for a couple of weeks and you know that you're going to be able to achieve that. I mean... I'm pretty sure that we've all written riffs where we think, oh, this would sound so much better if it's 5 BPM more, but I can't play it at this fucking speed. So then you work on it, and then eventually you can play, and you're like, yeah, I was right. Or it might be alternative, I was wrong, it sounds like crap,
0: but I can play that fast (laughs) now, that's
2: cool. Yeah, at least least now that you can play faster, you can play slower, even better.
0: Exactly. Have you ever written something where uh, it's at a certain tempo? You wrote it, you wrote drums, and it's like fucking slamming. But then uh, when you go to actually play with your drummer or whatever, it actually sounds a lot better, 10 BPM slower or something.
1: Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah, me too. And vice versa as well. Sometimes when it's on record, it sounds better live when it's slightly faster. There's one song in particular where we've tried it live and it just doesn't work. And I think it needs to be sped up by 5 to 10 beats per minute. And I think that's what's going to fix it, but we still haven't tried it.
0: Man, tempo is such a crucial part of it. I think any good producer knows this. I feel like a lot of musicians don't think about tempo outside of what the metronome is at for an exercise. So like they think about tempo as like a functional kind of thing. Like today I can do this exercise at 180 in a 16th notes tomorrow, 185 next month. 210 or something, but they don't always think about it in terms of this is the tempo that this part feels the best at musically, which I think is kind of more important.
2: I think so too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in metal, it's not in every kind of music, but in metal, you see a lot of guitar players that write to drum machine, you know, like, like all of us, I guess writing things that are just ridiculous because they can You know, because it's too fast. And then he's like, come on, man, it should be a little bit slower. (laughs) Well,
0: it's fun. That's the thing. It's fun when you're doing it and you're like pushing the limits of your ability. Like you can kind of get drunk on that feeling of like pushing the limits. But just because it's fun doesn't mean that it's actually a good musical idea.
2: When it comes uh, again, specifically to power metal, I don't like it when it's too fast, like not, not to take anything away from them, but like Dragon Force music to me is too fast. That was their whole shtick
0: was how fast it is.
2: I think that power metal works at between 140 and 170. You know, when you, when you go above that, it, it starts lo- losing the groove. I don't know, it's it's a different pocket. You know, you're playing a different way. If you're playing at 200, you, you're doing one thing. If you're playing at 160, you're doing something different. And, and I think that sometimes it's too fast. Sometimes it can get too fast. Sometimes it should be faster, you know, with more extreme metal especially. But like with power metal, I really feel that you know, the pocket is 140 to 170. Faster than that is it loses it. And and I think it's important to be able to tell that too, you know, what's too fast, what's not. I see bands writing galloping riffs too fast a lot too. You know, it's like... It's almost like a Slayer riff, but galloping, you know.
1: What would be funny to witness, though, is all of these, you know, attempted them trying to play it live. I think that's also another guitar player's problem, that they don't actually remember that they have to play it live at some point. Unless, of course, they're just an internet band. But generally, I've definitely fucked myself more than once by that over the years. And yeah, I think that that's one thing to be wary of when you're writing music. Just like if you have the intention of playing it live and you're struggling at that point, yes, you might be able to learn it, but... Chances are you're probably going to have to slow it down ever so slightly.
0: I think also guitar players don't think about the fact that singers need to breathe. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, a pause between words is good sometimes. <laughs> I'm very much to blame for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah. Hey, hey, John, does your band write music together or do you write on the computer and send it to them? So it
1: kind of starts as an idea on a computer, either myself or Ollie generally. And then we can sort of get it into a state where it's like a verse, chorus, middle eight, you know, that sort of thing. And then we'll sort of send it around. Mike will, our drummer, will potentially throw some ideas into like what could happen for certain sections. Um, He's an anomaly. So likes to do the time displacement thing quite a lot. Yeah. So then we try those sort of things out and basically we just try and get a full structure. And we normally do this before we've even jammed it in a room. And what I've always wanted to do is take that one step further, which we started to do with Phrenesis, where we would actually jam it in a room and try and find the correct tempos for each individual part. Because a lot of people just stay the same tempo the whole song. and. I like to experiment with changing things by like one to five beats per minute around that sort of tempo. So like when it goes into a chorus, it's like, it's pushing just a little bit more Um, like those little production nuances, which I've done on multiple songs. Yeah. It's a pain in the ass when it comes to playing to the click live, but it just adds that what I'm talking about, you know, that tempo change thing. It just adds... Just that little bit like even though you can't necessarily hear one beats per minute you can kind of feel yeah, it
2: yeah. it sounds more like live too right exactly yeah and the
1: songs that have those time changes in it are generally the ones that have done the best it's quite interesting to see it what about you do you write most of your stuff on a computer yeah
2: essentially i've been wanting to change that you know my band's new album i wanted to do that but the quarantine didn't make that possible <laughs> but I've been I really been wanting to do that because I feel that every song I write like no matter how much how much the musicians put their input it, it, I feel that unconsciously they want to stick to what I did especially drummers I'm like I always like I give drummers drum parts and I'm like you don't need to play my part just you know play just keep the snare there I would like the feeling to I like come up with a riff and tell the drummer now you play something there you know I I, I it's never happened
0: that's crazy. Cause the drummers I played with would do the opposite of what I'd write.
2: Well, I mean, I think, I think Tim made a career out of being able to sound like a drum machine.
0: That's true.
2: You know, now Patrick, the drummer in Northdale, he, he, uh, he played with Yngwie, uh for like 15 years. So I kind of write the drums thinking that is him playing. So he ends up just playing that. But we've been talking about that, about trying to come up with the ideas together. I don't know what that feels like, you know, like I've, I, I never, I, it's never, it's never, never in my career did I have, not even back in Brazil, you know, did I have a band that I'm like, yeah, like, guys, let's jam and come up with the songs, you know, it's never happened. It's always, it's always, I write the demo, send it around.
0: That's why it blows my mind. We just had Dean from Arc on. It blows my mind that they write their shit together. It's technical
1: death metal and it is
0: obscene. How do you write that shit in the same room as another human? <laughs> it makes, makes no
2: sense. They probably jam on like drum pads and stuff, right? Because if you're trying to do something that technical and you have to play 35 times with loud drums, that would suck. I don't know, man. Fucking Canadians. Like a band like Arkspire. I would think that they sit there. All right, let's do the first three beats of bar one. And then they do it. No <laughs> Maybe they just really like
1: pain. That's all I can think about, really. Maybe that's what it is.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Life's all right, guys. too good Bar in too Canada. To- you got to yeah, make my- it harder. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's yeah, probably man. what it is. Well, Bill, I think this is a good place to end the episode. Want to thank you for hanging out with us. It's been awesome catching up with you again.
2: And good to meet you, Bill. Likewise. Thank you guys so much for having me. It is a pleasure as usual. Every time, you know, I do an interview with you, I I get a lot of new fans. So that's great for me too. (laughs) Glad to help. Thank you so much. If you guys haven't checked out my band, North do so. If you don't like power metal, you probably hate it, but it's okay.
1: (laughs) Everyone likes power metal. If anyone that plays guitar and says they don't is lying.
2: It makes you happy, man exactly <laughs> yeah man thank you so much and uh, i hope you know i hope your listeners learned something from today and uh yeah hopefully we can do this again
0: sometime soon i'm sure we will all right brother Take care peace i like bill yeah he seems really sick yeah he's a funny dude he's always entertaining
1: yeah really really it was really super comfortable to talk to him
0: Yeah, he's impressive, man. He's done a lot more than he lets on. Like, I know he's a confident dude and everything, but the amount of gigs that he does is kind of mind-blowing. He really is a professional rock star for hire, basically. It's really impressive.
1: Obviously, I heard of a lot of the different artists he's been involved with. And listen to their music but i just didn't realize it was on such a humongous scope that he's played with all of these different people it's it's mighty impressive for
0: sure yeah well i mean he's he's great and i think as funny as it might be to some people listening that the whole image thing i think that is part of why he is able to do this like he takes every aspect of it seriously like as someone who would be hiring a guitar player you want them to look the part, play the part, all that stuff. And if you know that they are taking it all seriously, like it's their job, that's great.
1: It is, yeah. I mean, a lot of musicians, and myself included at some point as well, You only sometimes you only think about the instrument and playing the instrument to the best of your ability. But unfortunately the real world involves a lot more than just playing your instrument and it's good that Bill had a good grasp on that pretty early on in his uh in his career cuz uh you know we heard the story he got turned down but we also heard the story that that was the reason he got hired for certain things you
0: know yeah well that basically saved his life and his career i think i think so too like it's our i could the way he was going i could have seen him dying
1: Yes. I mean, if he managed to piss off a band on the first night.
0: (laughs) Well, I just mean from like liver disease.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. But also I think just burning all of those bridges as well like that. And then he would have sent him probably into quite a negative spell as well. So it might not have even just been the liver. It might have just been, you know, everything, everything.
0: Yeah. It's so cool to see people do a total turnaround and then fucking crush it.
1: Yeah. Like it's really inspiring because obviously, you know, he was at the lowest of the low and then he's just turned it around and he's flourished into something quite amazing. And it just shows that anyone
0: can do it. That's one of the reasons I like talking to him. It's always inspiring. I wonder sometimes if he gets tired of talking about it, but it's just always inspiring to hear that kind of story. Because I think a lot of people who like haven't done shit yet, uh, maybe they're starting to get a little older or they feel like they fucked up. They feel like it's over. It's usually not over unless you quit.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, there's multiple different avenues that you can, you know, go down just because you pissed someone off in the past or did something that you regret doesn't mean that you can't turn that around into continuing on in the same business. Obviously, there are limits to that fucking up bit, but he turned it around and obviously rebuilt those bridges that he'd burned.
0: Yeah. And he said something else that I think was very interesting <laughs> cuz me and him are close to the same age. We kind of we come from the same world. He talked about how rhythm guitar was kind of looked at as lesser than lead in the world that he came from. It was just kind of not taken seriously. It was taken seriously as lead. And so rhythm guitar players often like were not even, were considered like the less good guitar player. I remember that because I grew up in that era too. Like rhythm was just, it wasn't what we focused on because it wasn't made to be important. Even though it is fucking important, it wasn't made out to be. And so he's kind of had to learn to take it seriously, which I think is also really cool. Um, He evolved his guitar playing and he had our same thinking, which is you're playing rhythm 98, 99% of the song, that's what you play 99% of the time. You should be awesome at that. That's (laughs) That's the majority of what everybody is hearing you play.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of weird. I consider that sort of 80s syndrome, so to speak, but not to say that those songs where they didn't focus on the rhythm weren't good, but it was definitely the afterthought. They were just thinking, let's run up to this solo and play this solo as the best it can be. And then, you know, the chords don't matter. Just write something that the singer can sing over. But nowadays rhythm, I mean, even back then, you know, Metallica and stuff like that, but rhythm is such a huge part of, of the rock metal scene that if you suck at it, then you really, really need to work on it. And we, we do that at Riff Hard. We really focus on the rhythmic aspect of playing because, you're playing it 99% of the time. If you suck at it in this day and age, you're practically useless to
0: anyone. There's a million places to learn guitar, but I don't know of anyone that focuses on this. And like you said, in this day and age, it matters. Like these styles of music have evolved, the tastes of the listeners have evolved, the bar's been raised. You can't just treat rhythm as an afterthought anymore. Like those days are over, my friends.
1: Yes, you need to be able to play the weirdest of rhythms and obviously the the simplest of rhythms as well, which are equally as hard as the difficult rhythms.
0: Sometimes the simple ones are harder.
1: Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Playing it well when there's lots of space is just as difficult as playing something that's completely technical.
0: Yeah, man, so I remember back in the day when you would hear stories about the band that had the rhythm guitarist and lead guitarist, and the rhythm player would play all the rhythms and the lead player would play all the leads. And it was just kind of like this thing where nobody gave a shit about the rhythm player ever. But unless you want to be dated sounding, you kind of can't think that way anymore. It doesn't work that way. Every great guitar player I know now in the modern age is great at rhythm. Yes. What happens now is the shredder dude on the record Plays all the rhythms too. That's my experience with everything I've recorded in the modern age. Is that the best guitar player who's best at everything ends up recording everything? That whole like this guy's the rhythm player, this guy's the lead player. Those days are over. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't work that way nowadays. The best lead guitar players are fucking sick at rhythm because it's it's part of the language. Like you have to be good at it.
1: And if you, yeah, you're just going to drop behind if you're not equally as good at rhythm as you are at leads. If you spend all this time getting your lead playing up to, you know, being absolutely amazing, then you need to start working on your rhythm because when your rhythm's at the same level, that's when you become a
0: good guitar player. And that's when you become a hireable guitar player too.
1: Yeah, hireable one too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Wh- whereas you can be a rhythm player and not a lead player and still get hired because it's generally, you know, 99% of the time on stage, you're going to be playing rhythm. So it's actually more useful
0: just to play rhythm as well. It's a lot more useful. So anyways, if you guys want to get good at your rhythm guitar playing, not just good, but get awesome and current, modern, up-to-date, and learn how to slam the most devastatingly heavy, sick riffs and have a right hand that's just a mechanized beast, (laughs) go to riffhard.com and uh, sign up. See you next time, Brown. I'll see you in a bit, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.